And ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No. Because I'm going to get him. It is All Hallows' Eve, of course, as we know. Sowen is the, uh, this pagan druidic, uh, holiday, of course. Of sorts, if you, I suppose you can call it that. Folks, we're broadcasting live from our radio and television studios right here in beautiful Northwest Pennsylvania. You're tuned right into the Hagman and Hagman Report. Of course, we broadcast live each and every weeknight from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time right here on the Global Star Radio Network. Tune us in. Go to HagmanandHagman.com. And, of course, there you can choose your whether you'd like to watch us live or uh, uh, choose uh, Global Star Radio Network or any of the other broadcasting choices, including Blog Talk Radio. Don't forget, we've got two separate websites, ladies and gentlemen, Hagman and Hagman.com. That's for show information. And then, of course, HagmanReport.com. This is for the headlines. And it's a headline-rich environment, uh, to be sure. The third hour, we're going to be going over all of the news that you really need to know. I did a, uh, a video earlier today that will be out uh, later on that uh, has got a lot to do with uh, it's got a lot to do with the um, the headlines. And what I believe is behind it, I was on with Dave Hodges last night, the first hour, we talked about uh, problems that could be, uh, that could result. And remember folks, I had talked about, uh, I had talked about that, uh, uh, this election, the complexion of this election, it might not, not, might not end up, you might not have the same ticket. Uh, even at this late hour, you might not have the same ticket on election day as we see right now that'd be interesting to, to see but there's more to the story of course than just 650,000 emails there's always more to the story Huma Abedin close to the Muslim Brotherhood the emails being found on a on an alleged pedophile's computer I, I want to make it clear as well they took the router in addition to other, in addition to the laptop, and it's my understanding they also got a search warrant for a desktop or an all-in-one uh, computer at the residence. Huma, of course, is uh, has been iced out of the Clinton campaign. Temporarily, I think they're trying to distance they're themselves. Yeah. Just. Um, for those who don't pay attention and don't know Huma Abedin and that she's been the number one uh, close confidant of Hillary Clinton for 30 years now. 20. You know, 20, 20 years, yeah. She's calling her, you know, our staffers' emails being looked into. And right. Well, distancing herself in language and in, in it, action. You know, folks, I mean, she was born in Kalamazoo, Michigan, January or uh, July 28th, 1976. Moved to Saudi Arabia with her parents when she was two years old. Spent uh, time in Jeddah. Grew up in uh, grew up in uh, around Jeddah, and then came back to the United States when she was eighteen. Attended George Washington University. Was really active in Muslim affairs there. And of course, her mother was the um, 
a member of the Muslim Sisterhood, which is the component, the female component of the Muslim Brotherhood. So th- there's a lot of Muslim or Islamic influence there, and we have to take that into account. You've got, you've got undoubtedly confidential emails, and I think this is what, uh, uh, classified emails, and I think this is what, uh, uh really caused this latest, uh, among other things, this is what caused the latest uh, announcement, is the fact that they, meaning the NYPD, the uh, uh, agents from the New York FBI office, had seen some things on Wiener's computer that does suggest that um, there was some huge file, not huge, not huge in number, but critical uh, files uh, resident on the computer, and and why. Some say, well, it's a cloud issue. Syncing up a cell or a smartphone with a laptop, it becomes uh, all of the emails, you know, that get downloaded. I understand that, but I think it's much more. There's much more there. Um, so let's. We are going. We are keeping our eyes on this. In fact, twenty-four-seven uh, since Friday, the announcement on Friday. I've been following this, and and uh, and and of course, one more thing before we get to our guest to talk about uh, not just current events, but talk about the significance of this day for the non-believers, the pagans, maybe the believers on the other side might be a, a better way to say it. But um, in Hour 3, we're going to be talking about the significant, or uh, going to be talking about all of everything that's, that's taking place. But uh, Donna Brazil, the interim chair for the DNC, of course caught lying she did feed the questions ultimately to Hillary Clinton on at least two occasions from C- during her during her position um, at CNN or as a contributor for CNN. The, extremely important, extremely diabolical, and of course, for her to claim that she's being persecuted, that's beyond the pale. Our guest for the next. Well, for the next uh, two hours is going to be Dr. Michael Heiser. Before we get to Dr. Heiser, I want to remind everyone or let everyone know that Portions of the Night's broadcast sponsored by ZipRecruiter.com. My goodness, are, are you a small, medium, or large business? Do you Are you in charge of hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Well, posting your job in just one place is not enough to find quality candidates, not any longer. That's why I want to direct everyone to ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. By going to ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial, their listeners of the Hagman and Hagman Report will get a free trial period to use ZipRecruiter. And I'll tell you something. I've experienced this. I've taken it for a test drive, and, boy, it's a, it's a fantastic service. If you're looking for that one candidate but don't want to juggle emails and spend time on the phone, you can rate the candidates right there on the easy-to-use interface. Folks, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. One more time to try for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. Now, on September 19th of this year, we had a very interesting, very <laughs> great guest on, Dr. Michael Heiser. His website, Dr. MSH, for Michael S. Heiser. That's Dr. MSH.com. That's his website. And, uh, we had a great, great show on that day. We talked about a lot of things, a lot about the, I mean, this gentleman is extremely learned in 
the Bible in Hebrew and other languages. So I'm going to kick it over to you. You can yeah. bring him on. And Dr. Heiser has uh, the Naked Bible blog as well as the Naked Bible podcast. And he has written the book, The Unseen Realm. Um, and we talked about this last time uh, Dr. Heiser was on. And we, we got into a lot last time he was on. And a lot's changed since then. Dr. Heiser, it's great to have you back on the show. Yeah, thank you both for having me back. We appreciate your time coming back, and uh, we, we got a lot of emails. After your first appearance with us, received a lot of emails saying, man, you've got to have him back, and uh, just an incredible amount of interest. So thanks for taking your time out tonight. I know that you're traveling, or I believe that to be the case, and I know that your time is limited, so uh, let's get right down to it. Uh, Joe, sure I'll just again, toss back to you. Well, um, Dr. Heiser, we have a, a lot we can cover tonight. We have what we see going on in the world of politics with the election, um, you know, just days away. We have, uh, the, you know, Syrian conflict and the potential for World War III and Russia and, and the U.S. getting involved. And we have, uh, tonight being Halloween, a, a very prominent satanic holiday. I'm going to just throw it out to you, Dr. Heiser, <laughs> and let you pick up where you want to start. Yeah, typically when I, uh, when I do guest appearances on this particular day, um, lots of people are interested in, um, you know, sort of the biblical perspective on things you associate with Halloween. And the, sort of the, the low hanging fruit is things like ghosts and demons and the underworld and whatnot. But in, in view of the way, you know, you've introduced things, I mean, you, what you're really angling for here, at least my sense of it is the uh, sort of the connection between the uh, unseen world and geopolitical events, and that is certainly something that Scripture uh, affirms uh, pr- pretty clearly. Uh, it's not it, it goes beyond sort of the religious connection of certain areas or certain domains, certain nation states with particular deities. I mean, that that's pretty obvious. But when you go to passages like Daniel 10, uh, where, you know, we have an episode in the book of Daniel where we run into entities known as the Prince of Persia, the Prince of Greece, and that chapter, Daniel 10, is sort of feeding off of Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, where you know, God has certain perspectives, certain destinies uh, in mind for these uh, specific nations and knows what uh, is going to happen with them and how they're going to replace each other, you know, fight each other. There's conflict and uh, displacement of one with the other, you know, in the struggle for power. But here in chapter 10, we, we discuss, you know, the, the text discusses these same entities drawn from these earlier chapters and says, hey, behind those, those guys are these supernatural princes that are, again, really in charge. I mean, they, they move, they influence uh, people, and people in power are not immune to those influences. And when people in power are subject to manipulation, uh, by unseen forces, they make decisions that affect their populations, and you have things like wars and terrible policies that uh, result in chaos among their popula- populations. Psalm 82, the gods of the nations are accused of that very thing for abusing their populations, and you know God has a sense even for nations that aren't uh, Israel 
that he uh, assigned to lesser uh, Elohim as a punishment at Babel, and we talked about that last time. Uh, he has a sense that he still wants them ruled according to just principles, according to uh, principles that you can find in his law. You know, Paul talks about this, about how pagans have the law of God written on their hearts. I mean, they know what what is a good way to live. They know what abuses are. They know what justice and injustice is. And, and the Bible, the biblical view, is that when nations are in chaos, it's because of the supernatural forces that are supposed to be governing them in a correct, just way. And when that doesn't happen, it throws the world you know, into turmoil. So what we see today, I think, maps over pretty well. You know, to a, a biblical perspective as far as what we see isn't the whole story. I mean, there is a greater intelligence that is uh, guiding, uh, manipulating, creating, structuring, framing all that we see. Uh, and that's certainly a part of biblical theology that we should not dismiss. So what you're saying is as these uh, human beings who are in different controls of, of governments and um, positions of power uh, both on the front stage and behind the scenes there are also spiritual forces at work that yeah uh hinder absolutely and, you know these people with the, you know the because a lot of these politicians and the people behind the scenes the money men um you know it's not mm-hmm. just that they don't believe in god we have seen you know even from the hillary email scandal and leaks the um you know, her talking about sacrificing a chicken to Moloch in her backyard, that a lot of these people are active in, uh, you know, say the Satanism religion, black magic, and, and do practice it. And, um, what you're saying is this follows a deeper, darker spiritual agenda that some of these human beings don't even realize that they're playing out. Yeah, and even, I mean, there are a number of instances where in the podcast we're going through Ezekiel right now. And in Ezekiel, I believe it's chapters 8 and 9, you have people who were worshiping Yahweh, the God of Israel, but doing it in such a manner that it involved idolatry. Uh, It involved a direct violation of Deuteronomy 4, 19 to 20, not to worship the sun, moon, and stars. They're out worshiping the sun in Ezekiel, thinking they're bowing down to Yahweh. So even uh, people who are not overtly, not knowingly, uh, willfully uh, worshiping, you know, sinister gods, you know, spiritual forces of darkness. Uh, e- even they, you know, are, are subject to this this sort of scrutiny by God, and you know the, the judgment that goes with it. So, you know, I, I've read a, a number of, of of things about you know certain people that we read in the headlines today, and some of them do some pretty weird stuff. Some of, some of them, you know, appear more innocuous and you know, quote unquote, well intentioned. But it isn't an issue of intentions. It isn't an issue of of uh, sort of knowingly doing this or that. Uh, the, the spiritual world that, that's described for us, you know, we, we talk a lot about spiritual warfare in Christian circles, and we tend to, I think, incorrectly, uh, sort of view that in terms of the spectacular, things like demonic possession. When, I mean, that, there's, that's certainly part of it, but for the most part, 
a lot of this sort of thing is unseen. You know, we talk about the unseen hand of providence on the good side. Well, there are un- plenty of unseen hands on the other side, too. And so it, it's incorrect thinking to only look for the spectacular. A lot of what goes on in normal you know, decision-making, I mean, the biblical view is that, look, we are human beings. There is a battle, not only for our soul, but for... Uh, on, the, on the dark side, to control the turf that is presently under dominion. And since that turf is occupied by people, we need, you know, the spiritual forces of, uh, you know, that are opposed to God need to move the herd. They need to uh, have things go on in that space, on that, on the ground, in that turf, that coincide with and further their own hold on that that ground, you know, their their own dominion. The way the dominion is broken is through the power of the gospel. Uh, that people are, you know, leave the worship of illegitimate gods and they turn to Christ. They they you know, they align themselves with the true God, which in New Testament language is you know, incarnate in Christ, and you have the whole work of Christ in the gospel, so on and so forth. So if you don't have that happening, then you have a lot of other stuff happening in its place that allows spiritual forces of darkness to hold their ground. That's really where Scripture's at in spiritual warfare. It's a battle for the mind. And it's, it's a battle for who, who can get these humans to respond to our influences more frequently uh, than not. And, and especially when it comes to the gospel, who can, you know, can we hold that at bay? Can we get people to not believe or believe something else or nothing at all? Or, you know, are we going to lose them again to the, to the message of, of gospel, uh, of the gospel of Christ, you know, Yahweh incarnate, who is the God of gods? That's really sort of where it's at more than, again, the, the, the kind of spectacular things we think of. Um, that's very interesting. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that, um, people read their Bibles and they come to understand or they hear it on shows like this or, uh, in sermons in church and, uh, you know, one of the things that when we started doing this, when I really started to get into scriptures when we started our show was, um, I think it's in, in Revelation, where it is in Revelation, where it talks about how, uh, you know, God would rather you be hot or cold for him, but because people are indifferent and lukewarm, it's, you know, it says, I spew you out of my mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, how much does indifference allow evil to flourish? <laughs> if we can get into yeah. that a little bit. Oh, I think I think a great deal uh, because you know they're, they're, think of it this way again. We don't often think of of the resurrection this way. You know, when we when we think of resurrection, and this is normal, and this there's nothing wrong with this. It's certainly part of biblical theology. The key word there is part. We think of the resurrection in very personal terms. Christ rose from the dead. Therefore, if we believe in him and we are, again, all these biblical phrases, we are united to Christ, we are part of his body, we are the body. You know, all these these metaphors that scripture uses for our relationship to the risen Christ, then we will have eternal life. So we tend to parse the resurrection as being the key to our own eternal life. Again, nothing wrong with that. But it's really curious that Paul in a number of passages, when he thinks of the resurrection, does not only think, it's just the, the, the thought that pops into his mind is not only, oh, this means eternal life for us. The thought that pops into his mind is, this is associated with, this is crucial to, 
or leads to or causes the loss of power of the principalities, the powers, the rulers, the authorities, all these words Paul uses for the spiritual forces of darkness. You know, we, we have Colossians 2, for instance, where Paul is, he says in verse 13, You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him. He, you know, he made us alive. There's that resurrection language. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. And again, that's the part we think about. But then in verse 15 he says, In doing that, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. He does the same thing in Colossians. He does it in Ephesians. There are just a number of passages where for Paul, the resurrection is crucial to the illegitimacy, the, the, the loss of power, the diminishment, and, and ultimately the destruction of the other gods, the principalities, the powers, and so forth. So when you talk about apathy... If we don't, again, take this seriously, if we don't take the gospel seriously, if, if this isn't a thing that, you know, we see ourselves as integral to the expansion of the kingdom of God, okay, on earth, and specifically that means the growth of the body of Christ, the growth of the church. Uh, and again, that's not to say the kingdom is only today. I, I, I believe in a future, you know, literal kingdom to come. But if we're not actively engaged in our part, of that mission then by definition if the church is not growing then the powers that be the spiritual powers of darkness maintain their hold uh, they, they, don't, they don't suffer defeat they don't lose their citizens they don't lose again the, the, the people that, that they can empower and manipulate and abuse and so on and so forth so yeah apathy is a big deal you know, if, if you're not moving in one direction and, and accomplishing the thing that God tasked us with that specifically relates not only to us and our afterlife but the forces that are, under, that, that are controlling our world now then you're helping them. I mean, just just by definition, uh, because Scripture does put it in those terms that this has something to do, you know, with the expansion of the gospel. So, if I'm hearing you correctly, uh, 320 million people, just for example, in the United States, and um, we're moving to, toward, in my view, anyway, uh, a more secular. Mm-hmm. Well, even worse, I, I do suggest we're moving more toward a satanic um, uh, government, or not a government, but a satanic uh, belief system, whether that be more Islamic, more atheistic, whatever it might be. In atheism, I, I don't believe it to be uh, non-belief. I believe it to be more um, more nefarious than that. So having said all of that, if I'm hearing you correctly, then is this a case where we are looking at the chaos that's taking place here in the United States, a direct result of our lack of faith and action in faith, uh, where the spirits that have bound up all the chaos have drifted away, the hand of protection, the hand of God has been lifted and and well, I, we yeah, I, I would agree. I, I think we are living in a post-Christian culture. Um, I think we are, yeah, the experiences of the early church are going to come in pretty handy uh, because they had to 
say what they say and they had to do what, what they were supposed to do in the context of open hostility toward them and also a very pagan world. So I, I think, you know, sources like the Church Fathers, again, some of these early church histories are going to become really valuable to us in the West because that's the world we're, go- we're moving toward. I, I really do believe we are in a post-Christian culture, and, and that's going to take a lot of forms, as you just suggested. The reason for that, yeah, I, I do put squarely at the feet of the church. The, the, the reason we're, we're, we're headed toward, you know, a, a, a totalitarian sort of fascistic, pagan, uh, neo-pagan, you know, s- sort of world is because the church has been ineffective, and the church has been ineffective in a number of, of ways. It has dilute, diluted its doctrine. It has changed its doctrine. I think it's, I don't want to say hopelessly worldly, but it's overwhelmingly worldly. And what I mean by that is is our minds are more on this world than the next. We're supposed to be thinking that this world is not our home, and so what we do, the things that we do on a daily basis, we're supposed to assess uh, have a value assessment of, you know, is this going to further, you know, God's plan? Okay, is this going to contribute to someone, you know, having eternal life? So, so that, you know, the next world is, is, is this going to again? Am I doing this only for the benefit I can reap here, or is there spiritual benefit in the life to come? And honestly, the the, the new heaven and earth to come. I mean, we're supposed to be, you know. Otherworldly minded, not that to the point that we're no good, we're no practical use here. There's a relationship between the two. There's a balance between the two. And I think uh, Christians overwhelmingly have fought too often and too frequently on just this life. And it, it stifles us from taking risks uh, to do the right thing. It, it, it stifles us from um, practical things we can do to not only spread the gospel, but but to show the world um, you know who who Jesus was in the way we sacrifice with our resources and the way we sacrifice you know with our time and our finances um, we, we don't look very much like in in most respects the early church and and this is not a political statement the the early church was not a communistic society there is nothing in the New Testament that suggests the coercive power of the state to take personal property there is nothing that legitimizes that at all these were all voluntary decisions out of a heart of love, not something that you know that we're authorizing the state to take from you and give to that other guy over there. It's not that way at all. That 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 is a manipulation, and frankly, a a stupid, a, a an exegetically stupid position uh, Dr. to take when it comes to scripture. We are coming sure. up against our, our first break. Um, it'll just be a couple minutes, and we'll be right back. Folks, you're listening to Dr. Michael Heiser, his website, drmsh.com. Check out the Naked Bible blog and his the Naked Bible podcast, as well as his latest book, The Unseen Realm, Recovering the Supernatural Worldview of the Bible. We'll be right back.
and welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to this episode of the Hagman and Hagman Report. You're listening to this broadcast as we, well, as we broadcast from our radio and television studios here in Northwest Pennsylvania. Our very special guest, Dr. Michael Heiser, really kind of part two or extended. You heard him first on September 19th and if, of this year, and if you didn't hear that broadcast, you got to go back and listen. This is one of the most educated, um, articulate, well-spoken, uh, just a tremendously you know, just listen. Listen to what he's got to say. His website. Just think of his initials, Dr. Michael S. Heiser, D-R-M-S-H dot com. Also, theunseenrealm.com, which is reflective of his latest book, his latest work. Um, before we get to Dr. Heiser, back to Dr. Heiser, I want to mention that we are following all of the headlines, all of the breaking news, all of this chaos that is existing within the um within within the domestic arena and, and you know there there are so many aspects to to the so many layers to this folks do not get lulled into thinking this is a simple matter it's not um uh, in fact there are many many layers deep to this and we're going to be getting into that in the third hour um uh, before we get back to our guests I want to just direct everyone to Folks, minutemanstove.com, minutemanstove.com. But this time, I mean, of course, the stove. Yes, you've got to get the rocket stove. It's a tremendous, it's a tremendous item. The rocket stove, Minuteman rocket stove, at minutemanstove.com is a tremendous stove. It it uses little wood. It it it's incredible. It 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 heats your long-term storable food, water, whatever it might be. It it's the equivalent to me, like a kitchen stove. It's quality. It's made in America by Americans working for MinutemanStove.com. It's an incredible buy. But this time, have you seen the the Russian knife there on the website? If you haven't seen it, just I'll, I'll tell you this: I could probably cut through, um, I don't know, four by four with this pocket knife. Check it out. If you've got a special guy, a special person in your life who would like a very special gift, this is one of the best you can buy, the pocket knife, the Russian pocket knife, D2 pocket knife. It's made of D2 steel, which is expensive steel and very, very well made. Check it out, MinutemanStove.com. Or just go to HagmanReport.com, click on the link to Minuteman Stove. Joe? We are talking with Dr. Michael Heiser. Um Again, you can check out his blog, the Naked Bible blog, as well as the Naked Bible podcast. And I know, Dr. Has, before the break, we were talking about the indifference and apathy and the how uh, the church and the church's people give up ground in the spiritual battle uh, through apathy. And um, in this segment, if we could, I was looking over your website and going over some of your teachings. Um, would you mind if we get into some of these? Oh, sure. Wherever you guys want to go. Sure. If we could start uh, here. Uh, God versus sea monsters. This is um, something that you posted on your site on uh, October 11th. Mm-hmm. And you have a, a YouTube video on um, on there to go with the teaching. Um, and I was reading through uh, Psalm 74. You say, check out Psalm 74 after watching the latest uh, video. And you said, does, do God... Does, do you know the Bible says God destroyed Leviathan when he created the heavens and earth? And uh, Genesis 1 isn't the only creation text in the Bible. Check out Psalm 74 
So I went back and, and I read Psalm 74. Can you get into this a little bit? Because sure. uh, I found this interesting, and I don't think I have the whole picture myself after just reading the Psalm 74. Yeah, Genesis 1, again, is the familiar creation story for obvious reasons, where God creates uh, by means of the spoken word. Uh, some, you know, see a hint of something else in its re- in the reference to the deep. You know, darkness was over the face of the deep there in Genesis 1. But, you know, primarily it's God creating through the uh, the spoken word. In Psalm 74, though, you take, you have language that comes right out of Genesis. Uh, we have reference to the God establishing, verse 16, Psalm 74, you have established the heavenly lights and the sun, you have fixed the boundaries of the earth, you've made summer and winter, so the seasons there which are referred to in Genesis 1. Um, you know, we, we have this familiar creation language, uh, in Psalm 74, but we have all of that happening as a result of the, first, the prior several verses where, you know, God divides the sea by his might, and that, that's also in Genesis 1. Okay, the waters from the waters get divided, but you broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. Now, where this comes from is in the ancient Near East, you do, you do have at least one example of some deity somewhere. It's specifically, it's Egyptian. The god Ta, P-T-A-H, creates with the spoken word. And so Genesis 1, you know, is, you know, kind of a, a diss to Ta, because no, it's Yahweh who creates with the spoken word, not this Egyptian guy. But you have many creation stories from Mesopotamia, not Egypt, that have the gods creating after destroying a monster that is a symbol for chaos, the, the chaotic conditions of the earth, that uh, some deity, in particular Marduk, is kind of the big big cheese uh, in Mesopotamian religion. And he slays the dragon. He slays Litanu. Uh, you know, that's the Canaanite term. Um, he slays some cor- sort of sea beast and then brings order out of the chaos. He creates a world that humans can inhabit. Well, Genesis 1 uh, doesn't really cover that ground unless to home the deep is a reference to the Mesopotamian beast that Marduk destroys, whose name was Tiamat, so that's possible. But Psalm 74 sort of picks up the ball and says, well, you know, we need to go after this whole idea that the world was formed after some deity uh, subdued the forces of chaos and made a wonderful world for humanity. Those other deities didn't do that. The God of Israel did that, and that's what Psalm 74 is about. So you, you actually have two different passages that try to reinforce the idea that it isn't a foreign deity like the Egyptian god Ta or the Babylonian god Marduk. These aren't the ones who are responsible for creation and for bringing an orderly world out of chaos. It's the God of Israel in both cases. So you have two different passages that try to reinforce creation theology with a different target in mind. Psalm 74 also is aimed specifically at the Canaanite version of this that we, we read in, in texts from a place called Ugarit. Uh, and in that case, you actually have the exact same vocabulary uh, in Ugaritic literature as you do in Psalm 74, where one of the gods destroys Litanu and 
And Yom, he subdues Yom, which is the word for the sea. Again, all this vocabulary right out of Psalm 74. So what both of these texts, Genesis 1 and Psalm 74, are doing is teaching creation theology. And each one, respectively, kind of targets bad theology, targets you know foreign pagan theology in, in, in doing so, sort of setting the record straight. Okay, uh, thank you for that uh, explanation. And um, again, folks, read Psalm seventy-four and check out on uh, under uh, the Naked Bible podcast. You can check out um, under uh, episode sixteen on on Michael Heiser's website um, the uh, article that we were just referencing. And if we can, we should. I was going to say, Go we, we should we should say something else, too. There, there are a lot of things in the Old Testament, especially, that are like this, where the reading of it sounds really strange to us. Let's just take Leviathan. Uh, you know, we, we tend to, to think of this great sea beast and think of dinosaurs or, you know, plesiosaurs or something like that. Uh, Leviathan is a word that was well known in other uh, languages, other you know, civilizations, other religions, as being again the the symbol for untamed chaos. And this, this was a big deal. Why does who holds the world together? You know, it's a big question for the ancient person. And they often used symbols and metaphors of the sea to describe chaotic conditions because people don't live in the sea. You can't. You drown. The sea is a scary place. It's untamable. It's violent, and it can be violent at any at any moment. And so we have that place, and then the, the nice place we live here on the ground. You know, it, we don't want one to overcome the other. And so they, you know, they would they would cast again this this very important theological question, really everyday life question. How do how do we know that just bad stuff isn't going to erupt and just devour us all? Well. You know they would they would credit their gods and, and the Hebrew Bible, of course, is going to cre- you know credit the one who made it all, you know the God of Israel. So they'll the writers will take these images and these fears and these ideas and sort of dismiss other deities from getting credit for any of this, and it's the God of the Bible who deserves credit for it. Now you mentioned Leviathan, and I've uh, done some studies on this um, in the past. Uh, I've studied it a lot, and I've always uh, looked at it as a, a system of government or a, a system that that man builds. That is kind of like what we talked about in the first hour. Yeah, know, Tom. Well, running why it. do you think Thomas Hobbes picked the metaphor? <laughs> yeah, you I've know, actually he, read that book he, too, and yeah. um, that's it's very a, it's a, insightful. It's a very good metaphor, you know. For you know, you either you either have an have life that's in order, or you don't. And of course, with Hobbes, the Leviathan, you know this uh, <laughs> this chaotic thing. But also, you know, who who holds Leviathan at bay? Well, it's you know it's the totalitarian state, you know, and and so yeah, it, it becomes a metaphor for control and totalitarianism and authority. So yeah, I mean he he understood, you know, why people feared, you know, why why they use that imagery. And of course, you know, we don't we don't want to adopt. The solution, but uh, it's a good metaphor. Yeah, and I think his his book was um, published in 1651. Uh, mm-hmm. It was titled Leviathan, and it talked about uh, commonwealths and yeah. um, 
you know things of man of of uh, governments of language of speech of all these different things that and he goes into great detail showing how man overlooks spiritual aspects of in, in just about everything we do um, mm-hmm. and it's a, a very interesting read um, and if we could I'd like to to go over something that you just recently talked about yesterday on your podcast the Naked Bible podcast uh, Ezekiel 17 we get a lot of questions or have gotten a lot of questions about this in the past um the riddle or parable of the two eagles um, mm-hmm. about the treachery of Zechariah. Can we get into this a little bit? Because uh, sure. I think listeners will really appreciate this. Yeah, and that's what Ezekiel 17 is about. Uh, you have, you know, that passage needs to be, you know, taken sort of in tandem with other passages in the books of Kings. And when you do that, you know, they, the, the, sort of the history of the end of Judah when you had, uh, you know, pe- pe- most people who are who are Bible students are going to be familiar with the fact that Judah is the, su- the southern kingdom. Uh, the two of the ten tribes, the ten tribes of the northern kingdom have already become history. They've already been scattered through conquest in 722 B.C. Well, the bottom, you know, the bottom part, those two tribes of Judah last, you know, 150 years or so longer, and they are gradually eradicated, taken into exile in three stages by the Babylonians. The second stage involved dumping, you know, taking King Jehoiakim back to Babylon and then installing a puppet governor who turned out to be Zechariah and or Zedekiah, excuse me. Zedekiah and is made to enter into a covenant with Nebuchadnezzar as Nebuchadnezzar's vassal, his servant. And so Ezekiel 17 is about how Zedekiah betrayed this covenant and provoked Nebuchadnezzar uh, into returning to Jerusalem and destroying the city and the temple. That's the last phase of the captivity, 586 B.C. And we know that because the first half of Ezekiel 17 uses this parable about the two eagles. First eagle is Nebuchadnezzar. Second eagle is is very powerful, but but doesn't have the status of or the second one doesn't have the status of the first. The second one is Egypt, and if we get around verse eleven on on through the rest of the chapter, uh, you know the what what the parable the allegory is aiming at is Zedekiah at one point, while Nebuchadnezzar was at home in Babylon, solicited Egypt to help uh, him get rid of you know Babylon's control. Uh, he wanted out of this arrangement, and Nebuchadnezzar again gets word of that. We, we know this from other historical sources, and says, "Well, it's time to finish the job." And he goes back. He takes his army back to Jerusalem and destroys everything. So this is a parable about that all this whole set of of events where Zedekiah basically shows himself to be a fool and brings upon disaster uh, upon Jerusalem uh, and the temple. And, uh, you know, lots of people take, um, this to have dual meanings or apply, and I know it's hard for, in this instance, to apply separate meanings to this because it's very specific in Ezekiel. But the, um, the different animals, and you talked about going back to Daniel, uh, mm-hmm. chapters 2, 4, and 7, you know, we see these animals used as symbolisms for nations and for powers and, uh, countries. And, um, all of it, especially in the Old Testament, seems you know, to be in in the past, and then you get to Revelation where you have the the beast with the four faces. 
Um, I don't know how deep you want to get into this because I know in the next uh, hour we want to kind of switch directions. But um, do the beasts in in Revelation with the different faces—the one of the lion, the one of uh, you know the eagle—are these different from the the Old Testament references we see in Daniel? Well, I think they're they're in you know a lot of them get subsumed. You know, Revelation, of course, really ultimately references, you know, Babylon, you know, mystery Babylon. Mm-hmm. And when you, when you get the four-faced thing going on, again, this is part of the book of Daniel. It's also part of the book of Ezekiel. Both of those have Babylonian settings for them. And so there's an association naturally, uh, with Babylonian stuff. You know the Babylonian power and the Babylonian world uh, for the for the biblical person, not only in the in the Old Testament era, but also in the New Testament, because they knew you know the Old Testament context for a lot of this. But it actually, I think, goes goes deeper than that because typically when if you ever hear the Old Testament preached in church, you know, if if it's when you do and it's about Babylon, we typically associate it with Nebuchadnezzar in the exile, but. Babylon was a big deal before you ever got those events. Babylon in, in, in Genesis 1 through 11, in, in many ways, and I talk about this a lot in Unseen Realm, was emblematic of the general forces of chaos. And, and again, to try to not make that so abstract, when the Bible and, and when I, you know, talk about chaos, what, what I mean is that a world that is operating in precisely the opposite way of the way God wants it to operate. <laughs> uh, you know, manipulation, abuse, treachery, you know, sin, evil, you know, immorality, all of it, again, was associated by biblical uh, people with Babylon. You just talked Not about just the. You, you just gave a, you just gave a summary of of the current talking points of <laughs> uh, news headlines today. Yeah, I mean, it, it, we're. That, this is why I think I don't think any passage in the Bible you know, talks about. And, and notice the way I'm, I'm I'm phrasing this. I don't think any passage in the Bible specifically talks about the United States. The United States didn't exist as an entity. It it, it had nothing to do with with biblical prophecy as given. However. Today, the United States naturally conforms in all those ways that I just mentioned to a chaotic world system and, and is being sort of moved in that direction. Now, we're not going to know if any of this prophecy talk, any of this prophecy stuff has anything to do uh, with with the U.S. Or, or frankly, you know how it has to do with any of, any of the other nations, even from the biblical world, un- until we get sort of some hindsight. You know, then then we would sort of know. Okay, there was a ripple effect here and there. And in other words, prophecy is going to work just you know in the future, just like it worked the first time around. Uh, there, there's a reason why the gospel writers, the disciples, even standing in front of the risen Christ, don't get it. They they still don't get what the whole plan you know what was about. Christ in the, in the risen Christ in the upper room, you know, after the road to Emmaus, it's, the text actually says he had to open their minds to understand. I mean, he's standing right in front of them, and they still don't get it. Now, in hindsight, when they actually you know ten, twenty, thirty years later, when they start producing the gospels, because it, it dawns on them, hey, 
we're going to die. We better write this stuff down. Okay, when, when, they, when they do that, then they have the benefit of the hindsight and they understand how things came together. But in the moment, even shortly afterwards, they had no idea. And that's the pattern for prophecy. So we're not going to know whether there's dual fulfillment or some sort of ripple effect or some sort of prophetic analogy uh, to something like the United States. But what we can judge is that the, the United States in many ways is Babylon-ish in terms of the chaos and, and whatnot. I'm, I'm very hesitant for another reason to put the U.S. into prophecy because depending on who you're talking to, it, it would almost require you to view the United States as a second Israel, sort of a, a national people of God entity. And to me, that, that mm-hmm. brings up all sorts of dangerous theological trajectories uh, that, I, that I don't think are biblical at all. But again, when you, when you talk about conceptually, how were the forces of darkness villainized and described and, and sort of aligned with a world system that everybody knew, you know, this thing we call Babylon? There's a lot of that that you can look, you know, in what's happening today and say, good grief, you know, it, it's like, it's like the Babylonian wish list all over again. You know, like transhumanism, we will be as gods. Okay, this, this, this elite utopian bent that frankly, both political parties uh, seem sort of married to, that, that the solution for all the world's problems is just another law passed or some government program or the ruling elite. You know, those sorts of things, again, trying to recreate Eden in human form after, after a, a sort of a, a human image um, that that's very you know Babylonish when it comes to again what what's going on in Genesis one through eleven that the biblical writers are concerned about and 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 preach against and that God actually acts against you know it, it's this restoring Eden bent and this you know becoming as as gods you know and you say well Mike you know doesn't doesn't God want the kingdom to come doesn't God want you know, isn't isn't the future of the new heaven and earth to have no disease, and you know, no crime, and no this and no that, and doesn't the Bible talk about that we're going to be glorified and and have perfect body? Yeah, it talks about all that stuff, but it 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 locates the catalyst for all those things in the plan of God. Okay, not in our technology, not in our quote unquote wisdom. We, we sort of swap ourselves in the role of God himself to bring these things about that God does want, but God will bring them about the way he wants them brought about in his own timetable. He doesn't hand his job description over to you or to any government. And, and that's the, the, the trap. And, and, but it's also, again, where you can see some, some interesting analogies with what, you know, the big concerns, you know, uh, you know, good versus evil in biblical theology. You uh, you covered a whole lot of uh, interesting ground there, from uh, the U.S. and in, in Bible prophecy to um, trying to understand and, and look to prophecy, prophecy. And one thing I always um, find interesting is, you know, when you read the Gospels and you read about uh, when Jesus was alive. And his whole life story and, and, uh, his ministry and, uh, his death and resurrection, you know, uh, really only very few people 
and even the uh, some of the apostles uh, doubted, you know, what Jesus was doing. I mean, even we know, uh, and then to get into a little deeper, even uh, you know, you look at the the verse where Peter talks to Jesus, saying it doesn't have to happen this way, and he <laughs> says, "Get behind me, Satan." We can see how even Satan can, in his influence, can talk through even some of God's closest people on earth. Um, but, you know, the apostles didn't understand what was going on, and we read the, the Gospels now, and we have the whole story, and we can, you know, yeah. we can gather the whole picture. But what you yeah, said about I, not seeing prophecy come to pass, because really we're not understanding what's happening, when it's happening, in that sense. Uh, I, I actually think I actually think that's by design. I, I have a whole chapter in, in the Unseen Realm uh, about about this subject that uh, God wasn't going to play his, play his hand uh, they didn't understand because they weren't supposed to and the reason the information was withheld specifically the fact that to restore Eden uh, to you know ultimately to, to kick start this thing we call the kingdom of God that the Messiah would have to die and rise again okay, that, that was the part they didn't get and that was the part that wasn't revealed there is no Old Testament passage for instance that has a Davidic Messiah, a Messiah that has to be the, of the line of David, who also has to be God, who will die and rise again, and that this will be you know, the solution, not only for the problem of Eden with human mortality, but also reverse the effects of Genesis 6, reverse the effects of Babylon, bring all the nations back together. All of those things are scattered through the Old Testament. And I use, I use, the metaphor I use in the book is, is the messianic mosaic. All of the pieces are there, but you can't tell how the pieces go together without hindsight. You have to have hindsight. And this is deliberate because God didn't want the forces of darkness to know that the death was essential. You can't have a resurrection unless there's a death, okay? The death was mm -hmm. essential. And it, because, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, had the rulers of this world known, again, what what the, the, the fallout, what the outcome would be, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. So that was the element that had to be kept secret. Now, when Jesus shows up, the demons and say, they know who he is, and, you know, you, you, can, you can follow the reasoning. Okay, the son of David's here, the son of the Most High. Well, he wouldn't be here unless he was going to kickstart this silly old kingdom of God thing. So God's up to no good here, you know. we we got to watch this guy, this Messiah guy. You know, so they know who he is. They know what the end game is to restore God's rule to earth, reclaim the nations and all that stuff. But they don't really know how God's going to do this and what this guy's going to do. So Dr. their Hazard, solution. Got to cut you short. I apologize. We're up against the break. We're going to touch on this and get into some new topics right on the other side. Stay with us. to this edition of the Hagman and Hagman Report. You know, this is kind of a an odd day, isn't it? All Hallows, Hallows Eve, um, Halloween, as it's known commercially. A lot of things taking place, and we, we only have eight days until the 2016 federal elections, and we've got news. So many headlines, you can't even follow them. Uh, I was watching the Twitter stream all weekend, and it was like... Uh, duck or bleed with every new headline that came out and a lot of information 
and of course the uh, the corruption that is being unveiled, contrary to what you might hear on some of the media, that's the corruption that's being slowly unveiled. The veil, yeah, the veil uh, of corruption is being torn. And speaking of veils, I, I do suspect that our guest, Dr. Michael Heiser, uh, the Unseen Realm, the author of The Unseen Realm, and the head of the website of the same name, as well as, uh, of course, uh, Dr. Michael Heiser's uh, website is drmsh.com, which is representative of his initials. Uh, visit, of course, that website. And he was on September 19th with us, talking about a number of things, including The Unseen Realm. But I think that we're seeing The Unseen Realm kind of... Uh, <laughs> push forth through that veil right now, the chaos, the dirtying of the air over the entire country, I, I, I do suspect uh, we're seeing that. Before we get to our guest, I, I want to ask you, if you're hiring, are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates, folks? I want to tell you about a, a company that I have found to be absolutely top-notch because posting your job in one place is not enough to find quality candidates. If you're looking for that special someone, that, that, that special person, if you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites. Folks, now you can. ZipRecruiter.com, you can post up to your job up to, to, to 100 plus websites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter. Just with one single click, it's that easy. You can find candidates in any city, any industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll in to ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface and easy-to-use it is. It's there. That's where the magic happens. You can vet the candidates. You can rate them. And, and you can manage all of the applicants through the interface. You don't have to juggle emails or calls to your office. Quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire just, just the exact right person you're looking for extremely quickly and efficiently. Folks, find out why. ZipRecruiter has been used by over 1 million businesses. Right now, our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, for free, by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. Joe? Right before the break, uh, when talking with Dr. Michael Heiser, we were getting into uh, the prophecies about Jesus and what he was going to accomplish in those prophecies in the Old Testament versus the life of an apostle or someone living in the time of Jesus and what they saw and how those two, you know, from the Old Testament scripts into what uh, Dr. Michael Heiser, you were just explaining about, uh, you know, how, you know, the forces of evil and, and demons knew of who Jesus was but didn't understand what was going to happen. Um, yeah, yeah. God, God kept again the the linchpin, the thing that had to happen, the whole, you know, the whole linchpin, the whole focal point of the plan, which was the death of the Messiah and then the the resurrection. Um, I mean, that was very cryptic. And again, as Paul says, the the obvious reason was had they known, had the forces of darkness known, they never would have killed him. But again, through the whole series of events we read in the Gospels, that's exactly the conclusion they drew. Well, we got to get rid of this guy. We got to we got to kill him off. And again, this is exactly what what needed to happen for their own undoing. And so it, it's this you know, in hindsight, you get this wonderfully clear, clever, you know, picture you know, on the part of God, but. 
they like I said, even right after the resurrection, they're risen Christ, you know, right there in the room, you know, and they're still like, you know, <laughs> what's all this about? And they still don't get it, but with the benefit of hindsight, all the pieces come together. And I mean, my view is that this is the way prophecy is going to work the next time around, too. And I know that that frustrates some people because I, I'm very public about not liking any of the systems because they all cheat when they need to. And, you know, that, that's not a sin. It's not a, a crime. You know, we, we have to guess here or there and make assumptions and whatnot. But I think we need to sort of you know, assess the way prophecy worked the first time around and, and really be honest and say, look, this is not easy. This was not light work. This is heavy lifting. And, and, and even, again, it, it took a lot of time and a lot of teaching. Uh, they had to recollect what Jesus had taught them. They had to be guided by the Spirit after the fact, uh, you know, until they got, they got done to, you know, to writing this stuff out, you know, for posterity. That took a while. And it, you know, it just isn't a simple one-to-one equation. A lot of Christians, you know, will say, "Well, you know, we just have to read something in the Old Testament or the New now, and just the, what's the literal interpretation?" Well, again, that, that's very simplistic because a lot of prophecy from the Old to the New the first time around wasn't what we think of as literal. Now, it, it happened in real time, but I'll give you an example. You know, when when Jesus when he's you know just a baby has to be taken to Egypt to avoid being killed by Herod they take his parents take him down to Egypt you know Joseph and Mary and then eventually they come back and when Matthew describes this return from Egypt of the baby Jesus or the you know, little boy with his parents he says oh you know well this happened to fulfill what was written by the prophet out of Egypt i have called my son well, if you go look at that citation, which is Hosea 11, verse 1, it's not even a prophecy in Hosea. Hosea is actually talking about the nation of Israel. He's looking in the past. He's not looking forward. He's looking at a past event and just commenting that God took his son, the nation of Israel, out of Egypt. And Israel is called the son of God in, when Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh and have that confrontation. Israel as a nation is actually called the Son of God. Where you know Moses says, God says, let my son go into the wilderness so that he can worship me. So it, it doesn't even look like a prophecy. It's not a prophecy. But yet it gets quoted like a prophecy in Matthew by Matthew. Well, why? Well, because Matthew sees a prophetic analogy to what happened. He sees the analogous set of circumstances in the life of the Messiah and draws the connection for his readers. It's not complicated, but it's not the first thing you'd think of. And we have a very simplistic approach in, in many respects to the way prophecy gets talked about. And so my word of advice you know, to, to people who are you know, really interested in it, and again, looking at, at our world around us, is like, yeah, that may have something to do with what's happening today, or this or that, or this might be the outcome of this statement, but we're not really going to know until we have hindsight. This is just the way prophecy is. It's deliberately cryptic in many regards. And God has his reasons for that. Well, you're absolutely right. That's why uh, no matter how many times you know I read the book Revelation, I just can't figure it out. Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, Dr. Heiser is our guest tonight. Uh, folks, go to his website, www.drmsh.com. Also, thenakedbiblepodcast.com and thenakedbibleblog.com. Uh, Dr. Heiser, it is Halloween, 
and uh, I do see your your email that you sent here, and I have um, that something that you wrote that I would like to get into. If we can kind of switch gears here, while it is Halloween, um, <laughs> the biblical view on the realm of the dead. By the way, before you even answer that, I did hollow out a skull and put it on the, <laughs> on the front porch of my home before I left for the studio. Where did put you some skull? Rent, rent, well, hey, shh. Hillary. Smiling. Actually, no, It's uh, it's got this freakish look on its uh, skull face. It's uh, got it from Hillary's uh, body count. And, but rent, rendered some fat or, you know, put some fat in there. <laughs> Lit that up, but anyway, no, we, we, yeah. Look, I mean, everyone in the United States, uh, or in the West, you know, celebrating how, all these ghoulish costumes. People don't mm-hmm. know what they're doing, right? I mean, well, they, they, they typically question. do it. I think they do it because you know they do, they do it because it's fun to dress up and it's fun to be scared and it's fun to scare other people. You know, we you know, this, you know, we 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 get that, you know, but they ultimately. You have to question, you know, how seriously they take not only the spiritual world, but again, depending on what they dress up as or what they glorify, uh, they they apparently don't take very seriously, you know, violence that actually happens to people and and and, and shows and and whatnot that really objectify uh, violence done to people. Uh, they don't. They, they just don't stop and consider those things, you know. And for, for me to even mention, it's like, oh, you're a killjoy, you know. Well, look, you know, this is what these shows do. And so you might want to think twice about what you're doing. And, yeah, the spirit world is real, and it, it doesn't like you. <laughs> you know? it's, 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 not a, it's not a friendly sort of thing. Uh, and, and ultimately, even if you get, you know, conned into thinking that it is, there's going to be, you know, pun intended, hell to pay, you know, if you align yourself with with darkness instead of instead of the gospel. But you know, people just don't think about it in those terms. They think about it in in terms of, you know, just having fun, you know, scaring each other and getting a chuckle out of it. Yeah, and obviously, like you said, people don't consider the violence and things that happen to people. If you've ever witnessed violence, like you know somebody being shot or stabbed, you're not going to mm-hmm. uh, ever in your life dress up like that person, right. uh, like the you know what I mean. Um, right. But no, Dad, the question I asked was, uh, and this is something I'd like to really get into: the biblical view of the realm of the dead, because we have Christians who believe they can, uh, you know, pray to you know dead relatives. We have all these different beliefs, from mm-hmm. ghosts and demons to. Um, you know, us being asleep or us being alive in heaven. Can you kind of get into the biblical view of the realm of the dead? Yeah, yeah. There, there's actually there's actually a different terms. I mean, we we tend to think of you know, Christians. Let's just narrow it to Christians. Christians tend to think that that uh, the way you you kind of parse ghosts will say is that is that ghosts are demons well th- that actually isn't you know a, a biblical view you you have a, you, two different terms fundamentally different terms you have metim which means the dead dead ones it's plural and then you have other terms like ovot or even ruchot ruchot is spirits ovot is a term that you would use for um, spirit beings, 
but not the dead. These these are like sinister, evil spirit beings. So you, you, there's there's a there's a distinction in the spirit world between the disembodied human dead, and I would suggest, isn't this profound? I would suggest that the things that get called the dead were actually once living and then died. Okay, <laughs> to me that makes pretty you know, makes a lot of wow. sense. You know, Never wow, that's profound. That <laughs> right, but the dead are not by nature. They're not spirit beings that never died. You know what I mean? It, it's you have to have. This is a term that's used of the human dead, something that that passed away or died or whatever you know euphemistic language you want to use for it. And now their their disembodied you know immaterial part lives on. Okay, as opposed to spiritual beings that are part of the spirit world that were never human at any point. They just thought they're a different different category. We have both of them, and you have warnings against contacting either. <laughs> so again, this notion that it, it's it's sort of well, I can I can pray to my ancestor, or I can pray to you know Uncle Bob, or and I'm not I'm not soliciting a demon. I'm just I want to talk to you know, look. Yes, there's a difference between the two, but no, Scripture doesn't want you to communicate. With either side. Now, you know, you, why? Is God just a mean old person that doesn't want us to, to be in contact with, with our loved ones and doesn't want us to learn anything about the spiritual world? Oh, you know, is God a cosmic killjoy and, and all this sort of stuff? It's like, look, the reason these commands are in place, first of all, is not because these things can't be done. It's precisely the opposite. It's because they can be done. And when you solicit these things, you don't know because it's not your world. You're, you're part of the world of the embodied. You don't know what you're getting. You can't control it. Okay? It is not subject to you. You can get disinformation. You can be harmed, potentially. That is why God forbids these things. When you want divine knowledge, knowledge from the spiritual world the divine world or whatever, however you want to say that if you want that sort of information from that realm of reality I will provide the means God says to do that in the Old Testament you know you go through the priesthood the Urim and the Thummim and all, you go through the prophets you know, there's, there's a way to get at that information you don't presume to do it yourself because you don't know what you're getting you can't parse it correctly and it's not going to have your best in mind, and you can be manipulated and make poor decisions or be harmed. So the laws are there for your own good. Not because God doesn't want you to know stuff. He doesn't want you to know bad, wrong stuff. And he doesn't want you to get manipulated and hurt. They're good laws. Okay, they're not, again, trying to, 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 you know, get in the way of a good time. That's usually the way we, we, we sort of parse the laws of God and it's just it's not it's not good thinking it's not clear thinking at all but in, in scriptural terms you've got again another sort of cast of characters and and sort of procedural things that can be done to contact the other side that God doesn't want done for those reasons so uh, okay wow wow so, so are you suggest, are you stating by what you stated that a deceased loved one how I'm not even sure how I can I couch this question or frame this question a deceased loved one is 
available for contact on the other side. Um, Potentially, yes, but but the problem is is that if if you if you do not use, and today you know, post, let's let's just say it this way. There's no warrant, there's no biblical authorization for doing this. You do have biblical examples where either A, a deceased person is contacted, or B, a deceased person is presumed to have been contacted. Let me give you examples of, of both. In 1 Samuel 28:13, the medium at Endor, and her, the biblical title for her is the Mistress of the Ove, Remember, Ove, again, is, is one of those terms for spirits. Uh, she's a medium, okay? So Saul wants her, she doesn't know it's Saul, but he wants to talk to Samuel because God won't answer his prayers. So in 1 Samuel 28, 13, after Saul's driven out all the mediums, he somehow knows where to find this one. He goes to her house and says, hey, I want to talk to Saul. Can you bring up, or excuse me, Samuel. I want to, I want to bring up, uh, we need, need to talk to Samuel. And she, again, she doesn't know it's Saul the king and so she does whatever she does we're not told what she does in the, in the episode but she says in verse 13 first samuel 28 i see elohim coming up out of the ground so whatever she does produces results she starts to freak out and and she has a sense now when she sees him whoever this being is that she's in trouble she turns to Saul and says, "You're Saul. You're the king. You know, you, you told us we're not supposed to do this, and I'm gonna. You're, you're gonna kill me now, and I'm in trouble." And he says, "Look, don't worry about it. I want to talk to Samuel." And he even asks her, "What does he look like?" And she describes, oh, "Yep, that's him. You know, it fits the description." And when they actually have the conversation, the departed, you know, and I think it was Samuel, the, de- the deceased Samuel, the departed spirit of Samuel, again, however we want, we want to phrase that, he knows things that Samuel knew and had said earlier, that uh, information that God had given him. And basically, he just repeats it and says, you know, hey, Saul, you're dead meat. You know, God has left you. He's, you know, he's with David. You're going to die. And it's just bad news. So that's one example where you have, and this is very common in the ancient Near East, you have Lots and lots of texts about the ability to contact uh, the human dead. Sometimes the, the, the term itim is used both in the Bible and, and in like Akkadian sources. It's the word for ghost. Akkadian, it's etemu. So a ghost, the, the, you know, the spirit of the departed dead, the human dead. On the other side, again, in, in the New Testament, remember when Peter was in prison and everybody's gathering to pray for him? This is Acts chapter 12. They're all like, oh, you know, we don't want Peter to die. You know, Lord, save him. They're all gathered there together to pray for Peter. Well, he, he gets released by an angel in the account. And then he, he goes to the house where everybody's gathered, and he knocks on the door. A little, the little girl named Rhoda comes out, and, and she's so, you know, flabbergasted at, at who she sees. It's Peter. She doesn't even let him in. You know, she, you know, she runs back to the, to the crowd and says, I, it's Peter. Peter's at the front door. And what do they say? It must be his angel. Now, there was a belief, again, in, in Second Temple period Judaism, that we have attached to us a guardian angel, but the angel was sort of like a double. Like, like if it appeared, it would look like you. Your guardian angel would look like you. And so that's the context for them saying, it must be his angel. In other words, they think he's dead. 
they assume that Peter has been killed. And she's like, no, come out to the door. You know, so they go and it's Peter. Sure enough, it's Peter. But it, it gives you a little, a little glimpse into, again, how they thought about the idea that you can have the disembodied dead, the dead version of a person, appear, you know, in, in this world, in, in this life. And nobody thought, you know, nobody corrects the theology. Nobody, there's no, the theology's not condemned. This is just part of the worldview about the spirit world and the afterlife and whatnot. But in either case, you're not supposed to assume yourself that you are, you're allowed to contact the dead. That's very clearly uh, prohibited uh, in Scripture, again, for the reasons we, we talked about before. But there, there, there's actually a number of terms that are used for the spirit world. You have ov, you've got metim, the dead, you've got itim, again, ghosts. Another one is yideoni, the, the knowing ones, the spirit. It refers to a spirit being that has knowledge that humans don't. Okay, knowing ones. Of course, Rephaim are also, you know, part of the underworld. Uh, Rephaim, again, are the, this is really where you get into where demons come from, because in, in Second Temple Judaism, and again, you get traces of this in the Old Testament, demons, the sinister inhabitants of the underworld that are not the human dead, um, they are the disembodied spirits of dead giants, the dead Nephilim, the giant clans. Rephaim is one of the names for the giant clans. And this is, this is talked about frequently in intertestamental texts and, and early Christian texts as well. We just don't, we never really get to that theology because again, a lot, frankly, lots of churches don't teach theology. They don't, they don't do exegesis. They don't do the sort of stuff that I, I, I talk about in Unseen Realm. But, but this is, this is part of their worldview. Uh, that you have contact with the other side. It can be done. It's dangerous. God doesn't want you to do it. That's why he gave the priests certain tools, and it's why he called prophets, so that he can control the flow of information, so that you will know the information is reliable, and you're not going to get manipulated or harmed or you know, really even maybe killed or something like that, or possessed. You know, God wants to control the flow of information, not because he wants to keep you ignorant, but because he's looking out for you. This is not your domain. You belong to the embodied world. In possession, and now we've, we've only got about three minutes here before the bottom of the hour, but, but possession can be um, invited. I mean, you can invite possession. Uh, demonic possession, right? Uh, by, by engaging in, in this kind of behavior. Yeah, I, it, it, it's, I think, I think Christians can be victims of this, so we have to define what we mean by possession. Uh, in my case, I don't believe that Christians can, in a theological sense, if we want to use a word, you know, I don't know if this is, this helps, but Christians can't, in a theological, legal sense, they cannot be owned by Satan or owned by the powers of darkness. In other words, if you're a believer, your soul is secure with Christ because you're in Christ. You're part of the body of Christ. So that's not what I'm talking about in relationship to Christians. Uh, by definition, even everyone who isn't part of the body of Christ is owned okay, by Satan. He is Lord of the dead for a reason. This is why he gets the, the, the titles and all this stuff. So possession, properly spoken of, don't even, doesn't even refer to ownership for, for people who are lost. What it really describes is sort of oppression or manipulation 
uh, control might be a better word. And I think that can happen uh, to Christians as well as non-Christians. But in terms of, of taking you away from from your position in the body of Christ, no, no dark power can do that, including Satan. So if we if we want to talk about this, we can. But I, I think we need to we need to be a little bit careful about the terminology. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we can we can get off into that after this break. We got about a, a one minute until we we go to well, the break. Yeah, we don't have to talk about that. I mean, I, I think we the distinction where we can go. Yeah, but. Oh well, yeah, whatever. But I mean, I just think that was a fascinating distinction that was made that Dr. Eisner made. Yeah, I didn't. Uh, but when you were speaking about Saul and and uh, and referencing him trying to and speaking to Samuel, that's when uh, I must have skipped or or not have read. Uh, that's an interesting story. I'm definitely gonna um, go back and and read that. Um, we got about one minute until the break, Dr. Heiser. You want to tell people about your podcast? Sure. Uh, the, the podcast, I actually have two, but the main one is Biblical Studies. That's the Naked Bible Podcast. So nakedbiblepodcast.com. And we do lots of topical things. Right now we're going through the book of Ezekiel. That's what listeners voted on. Um, it, it, it's a different podcast. I'm not doing touchy-feely, self-help, Jesus is your cosmic life coach kind of stuff. Uh, we're doing biblical content. So if you want biblical content, I recommend it. I also have a podcast called Peer Anormal, where we discuss paranormal stuff, but we go through peer-reviewed literature. There are actually real scholars and real scientists in real labs uh, who've made an effort to study all the things you'd associate with the paranormal. And so I want to introduce people to that material and have a, a Christian-oriented discussion about it. So those are the two Fantastic. main podcasts. Thank you. Dr. Michael Heiser is our guest. Folks, stay right where you're at. We're going to be right back. to our last segment with Dr. Michael Heiser. Folks, you can get Dr. Michael Heiser's information, his blog, his podcast, uh, his homepage, www.drmsh.com, drmsh.com, thenakedbiblepodcast.com, and thenakedbibleblog.com. And uh, Dr. Heiser, the last thing you referenced was... Um, the uh, peeranormal dot com and that sounded kind of interesting. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, it's a new podcast. We've done five episodes. We try to do one a month. Uh, the last uh, episode was on kind of our Halloween episode was on vampires and ghosts. So what we do on on each episode is <clears throat> there are four or five hosts. Uh, I'm one of them. And we all uh, read, you know, two or three articles again from uh, academic journals. Whether they're in the hard sciences or the humanities doesn't matter. You know, whoever's doing the, the research on this. So we all read them, and we, you know, we tell you know people what the articles are, and then we do the episode where we discuss the research of the article. Like if there was an experiment, like we did one in crop circles, an episode, uh, and we we came across a couple uh, articles where. 
there was an experiment to try to, you know, an analyze uh, plants, you know, inside of a crop circle. So what was this, what was the experiment? What did they do? What were the parameters? What were they trying to accomplish? What were the results? You know, and, and, you know, just sort of evaluate the research that's done and talk about it. And then we always try to steer the discussion too to, well, if, if this thing is real or if this goes this way or that way, how should we think about it as Christians? You know, what, you know, what should our perspective be on, you know, whatever the topic is? So, uh, the last episode on, on vampires and demons really got into sort of the, a little bit of the history, but also how vampirism historically, uh, kind of reverses uh, or, or perverts certain elements of Christian theological tradition. Um, the undead, the blood, and, and all this sort of stuff. So we spent a good bit of time on that. Um, same, and with ghosts, you know, we got into a little bit of the subject matter we were actually talking about here. So that, that's what we do on the show. Again, trying to, to have a serious discussion about these topics that everybody's interested in. But we don't want to have our discussion focus on speculation or hearsay or, you know, just something that, that might be made up. We want it to be to revolve around serious research. Okay, uh, it sounds like a fascinating thing. Um, definitely. I'll tell you what our next uh, episode is going to be on. The next episode is going to be on sleep paralysis. Ooh. Oh yeah, you're going to have a line forming a <laughs> line forming on that. You know, that and that's very controversial. You know, even even within the Christian community, does this have something to do with the supernatural world? Is it purely something material or a brain function or you know sleep disorder or something like that? So, that's a topic I've wanted to do for a while. So that that we're gonna we'll, we'll record it sometime in November. I uh, don't have a specific date yet, but that's the, what the topic's going to be. Well, okay, I, I got to ask you this question because. I can't wait in the middle of November or sometime in November. I, I can't wait. It's just one question. It's not really on sleep paralysis, but if um, if you if if you're lying in bed now, this this was conveyed to me by by a family member. I'm not going to identify that family member. No, it wasn't my wife. But if you're lying in bed and you feel like there's someone next to you when when that person's spouse is not in the room. And I mean, you can actually feel a form and presence and look. Mm-hmm. There's a form and there's some people yeah, see yeah, black shadows sitting on I their mean, chest. Yeah, it's like, I've had sleep and, and even like an arm around you. I've never seen anything, but other well, people will say it's very common. I, I mean, I mean, is that that you're telling me that that's not bad that, pizza or yeah, that, that pizza? That's in the that's in the orbit in the arena of what we'll be talking about in it. You know, I, what I, where I think I don't know where other everybody else is going to land, because um, the, the articles that I'll pick, I, I can tell you, one of them is going to link this to the to the old hag tradition or you know like shadow people kind of thing. Again, this is peer reviewed research. This isn't you know Billy Bob on his website. You know, you know had had too many and he cranks out a post on sleep paralysis. You know, this is this is serious stuff. So there, that's going to be one of them. Another one is going to be. Um, Again, sort of uh, talking about it in, in terms of being a sleep disorder, a, a particular brain function, you know, kind of locating that. And then there, there's a third one that's going to be kind of a mix. So you, even with the articles, there's going to be a spectrum of possibility and opinion. Now, in the examples you brought up, again, I, I'm, I'm not going to give any names either here, but I, there are people within my family, my extended family, 
who have had all of those uh, experiences, you know, different people. And so that is, you know, there's kind of a template for, for lack of a better term, ordinary sleep paralysis. Okay, yes, there is such a thing, at least in terms of sleep research and sleep study. But when you start to get kind of physical effects, and and you're experiencing those effects not while you're asleep, but but you you are you are you're awake, you're you're conscious. Uh, to me, I mean, my I think that there could be something more going on. Like, and when it comes to the shadow people, there are other things that happen to people, sensations they have. Uh, some would 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 say that well, I didn't actually levitate, but I had the sensation of doing that, or I could see this out of the corner of my. That's something a little bit different. It's related, but it's different. So yeah, I think there can be some, you know, demonic, sinister kind of stuff in there. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. All right. Well, so we're, yeah. so we, yeah, we got to find. Okay, so wait a minute. Where, where can we? Where can, we got to we got to bookmark this. <laughs> okay, so so t- tell us again where where uh, to it, it'll, this. Yeah, it, it's it, the site is called Peer Normal. P E E R and then A and then the word normal. So peeranormal dot com. And I'm guessing we'll, we will probably do this episode. Um, cause I'm gonna be gone in the middle of the month, probably toward the end of November, and that's where it'll be posted. But people who follow me on Twitter, okay, at MS Heiser, it's M-S-H-E-I-S-E-R, would get a notification. I would certainly blog about it. You know, we'd, we'd post it on the blog, uh, on the website, drmsh.com, so people can follow the feeds there and they would get notification of it. Alright. Sounds great. So, uh, re- at Real Tech Eric, make sure we're following at MS Heiser. Roger that. All right, ten four. Okay, good. All right, and folks, you t- you you as well. Uh, those with social networking uh, experience and just follow Dr. Michael Heiser. It's MS Heiser at MS Heiser on Twitter. Good, thank you. All right. Well, we uh, uh, we got about what twenty minutes left uh, until we're. Uh, Dr. Michael Heiser has to take off. Um, since we're, this is Halloween, I guess let's, let's go right to the next one. Where, you started to get into this when we were talking about the biblical view of the, uh, realm of, of the unliving or the dead. Let's talk about, um, demons, if we can, and their origin, where they come from, and, uh, demons, ghosts, and even if you want to, you know, people are talking so much now about, um, you know, alien invasions. Are these all topics all related? And um, where, wh- what is the difference, let's say, um, of an end times event happening? Because we, we're told in Joel, and we're also told in other parts of the the Bible that when the end times comes, that's the that hell will open up and will be unleashed on earth and that you know you have Joel's army in the book of Joel um always a crowd pleaser which is is <laughs> still something I don't completely understand but um it seems like that you know the things of our nightmares will be living amongst us in the end days whenever that happens yeah so, let's let's start with the, with the first one and it and it does relate to the second question the, these two things are linked uh, in in biblical theology uh, it sounds really strange uh for me or anybody else you know to say hey you know 
there, there's no verse that talks about where demons come from in the Bible, that, and that's true. There's no like chapter and verse that lays all this out. Uh, so some people think, you know, they're, they're not ready for that observation. But then when you whip the second one at them, then they think they're off to crazy town. You know, when, when I say that for biblical people, the origin of demons is that they are the disembodied spirits of dead giants, dead Nephilim, the, the giant clans. They go by different names, Anakim, Rephaim, you know, so on and so forth, the whole, uh, you know, alphabet soup there. That sounds ridiculous. It sounds crazy. Uh, but, you know, the, the threads to all of that, you know, are, are present in the biblical text. Now, if we were living in the first century, if you said that to a Jew, they would go, well, duh. You know, because so many of their own writers, their own uh, theologians, you know, talk about this. Uh, it's very prevalent in books like you know, the, what we think of as the Book of Enoch. First Enoch is, is the academic term for that. Uh, and that's not the only book, but you, you get a lot of this, and you think, well, that, they must just be making that up. That's just crazy talk. Well, if you go to the Old Testament, there are several passages. Isaiah 14.9... Uh, Isaiah 26.14, Job 26.5, that have the Rephaim, that's one of the names for the giant clans, they have the Rephaim in the underworld, in, you know, so to speak, hell, okay, in the abyss, in this frightening, sinister place that when you die, you don't want to stay there, okay? They're there, and this is part of the... You know, the mosaic, I'll, I'll use that metaphor again, part of the mosaic out of which Jewish demonology is formed. You actually get more information on this. I, ha I have a book coming out in, in February or March um, that Tom Horn is publishing. It, it's specifically how, how the Watcher story of First Enoch filters into New Testament theology. And so that one goes into a lot of detail. And again, it, it's all peer-reviewed stuff. This is what I do. It might bore some people, but this is what I do. Um, there's a lot to it, because if you go back to the Genesis 6 story, where all of this giant stuff starts, if you know the Mesopotamian story that Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is responding to, in Mesopotamia, pre- and post-flood stuff, you get divine beings before the flood and after the flood and after the flood they are both human and divine this sort of hybrid whatever it is and you get divine beings punished and sent to the abyss just like you do in second temple Jewish literature and they're there just like they are in Isaiah 14 and Job 26 and Isaiah 26 you get the same set of ideas now if you're a Jew this is your understanding. This is where demons come from. This is this is what they are. That means they're different. Okay, they're different than the gods of the nations, the sons of God that were assigned to the nations at Babel. Deuteronomy thirty-two eight nine. Another big subject of unseen realm. There, there's a whole cast of characters. It's not just angels and demons. If you're actually going to the biblical text, there's there's a lot of characters there on, on both sides. Now, how does that relate to end time stuff? Well, all of the traditions, frankly, whether they're you know Old Testament or New Testament or intertestamental, all of them have the Watchers. Those are the bad guys of Genesis six one four imprisoned. 
they have their spirits because they are the ones who who brought forth the giants and when you kill the giant it, its disembodied spirit went to live you know with the other guys in hell as it were in the underworld the Rephaim all of them have the Genesis 6 set in prison until the time of the end whereas the, the dead you know the disembodied spirits of the giants can roam the earth again just like the demons do in the gospel seeking embodiment both of those groups become relevant and the place where they're at becomes relevant in Revelation 9. Now, I personally think, and again, this book that, that Tom's going to publish, I have, I devote part of a chapter to it. Revelation 9's release of the bad guys from the bottomless pit, i.e. the abyss, I believe is the release of the watchers. Um, and again, that's not unique to me. That's very familiar from books like Enoch, other books that, that the New Testament writers were reading. Um, you know, while they were alive, and you know, it was just part of you know their tradition what the, what they read. Uh, they would have connected the watchers who were in prison, as Peter and Jude described them. You know, the disobedient spirits who are in chains of gloomy darkness or in prison. That's the language of the New Testament. Those guys get released in Revelation nine because it is at the last day. This is part of the end times uh, portrait, end times depiction, where they will. You know, wreak havoc on Earth until the time of their destruction. Um, that, and that actually goes back to Isaiah 26 itself. That whole idea uh, and, and other passages. I don't want to just give off a litany of passages here, but this is the idea. And so, yeah, there is some sort of eschatological factor that involves again the emptying out, so to speak. <laughs> Of the abyss, in in terms of you know supernatural, demonic, you know we're sinister spirits. We're definitely. Gonna, <laughs> I mean, seriously, <laughs> I, it's going to be a bad day when no, that it's, happens. It's this little box that Bill Murray carries around. Don't, don't, right. Didn't you see <laughs> That's the movie? Right. That's right. <laughs> Ivan Reitman, I guess. Yeah. Oh, did yeah. That, yeah. Going back a, a couple of decades, you, you know, yeah. and I make I, I try to make light of this because. I mean, this is serious, and this is real, and this is, uh, hence my uh, nervous laughter and, and my, my jesting. But, uh, but man, no, it, it, this is uh, biblical. Yeah, I think how it's going to play out, again, is, is just a, again, pardon the pun, just a, a, apocalyptic displays of wickedness, uh, violence, disaster, and I think manifestations as well. I think I think this is going to be you or, know, part or of the a weekend picture. in Chicago. I mean, you know, a normal <laughs> weekend in Chicago. Again, you know, yeah. but 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 you, but but you're it's it's almost like I mean t- tonight they say it's like the thinning of the veil, the veil that's is at its thinnest. I, but but is this incremental? The, the, is this a process that's incremental? Which you're referring to just now about, about this. Um, in, in Revelation nine, it, it, it's not. But again, I think we we I think incrementalism in, in terms of the the growth of 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 wickedness, you know, just the 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 emboldening of spiritual evil and and frankly human evil is commensurate with the weakness of those who bear the name of Christ and, and the advance of the gospel and again all, all of the things that we're supposed to be doing and I realize in the West and in the US and, and, and the West more broadly 
things just aren't looking good again because of again I, I lay a lot of this at the feet of the church just because it's abandoned its mission or adulterated it but I think we also need to take heart because elsewhere in the world the church is a mighty force even under persecution it's growing by leaps and bounds in Asia in Africa even in Muslim countries and you have amazing manifestations not not just of the bad stuff, but of, of you know, the Lord and, and, and God's power in, in truly supernatural ways that are bolstering the church, growing it just in other parts of the world. In other words, even under persecution, uh, the, the church historically has been at its mightiest. And again, that, that's a conundrum for evil. I personally think that, that when hell go, when everything goes to hell in the handbasket here in the West, that the church from other parts of the world is basically going to be God's instrument to save our butts. You know, they're going to they're show the church here how to not only live and survive in bad times, but how to flourish. And, and I really wish that, that more Christians, instead of, you know, not, you know here, here I am, I'm on a talk show, I write books and, and whatnot. Yeah, I'm interested in what's going on. I, I like to study it. I like to think about it. But I, I wish that more Christians would think about, okay, in 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years down the road when the, the church here has to live under the conditions where we're monitored where we, we have legitimate persecution where Christians aren't allowed to have URLs and websites and shows and they don't, they're not allowed to have buildings I mean, it, it could very easily come to this you know, where you have to embrace monitoring to, to even look like a church Okay, when those kinds of things happen Let's think now, how would we adapt if church is not a time or a place? If we have all of these things removed from us, how do we function? How do we do the Great Commission? How do we, again, mimic the kind of things that, that were going on in the early church in Acts chapter 2, where we're ministering to people, where, where we have, it's self-sacrifice, it, you know, showing Christian love, you know, advance the God. How, how do we live like they did in the first century? I mean, for crying out loud, this was their world. When we inherit that world, are we ready to function? Will, will, or will we skip not just a beat, but a whole lot of beats? You know, are, are we gonna, you know, just give up, surrender, whatever? How do we prepare now for that eventuality? I think we need to be paying attention to how the church, the believing church, has functioned in these circumstances across the seas, you know, in, in some, in some very bad places. They have done it, and, and, and they, they know they know what it means, again, to, to sacrifice, to live in such a way that, that this world isn't their home, and they know it, and they're not scared by it. Uh, they embrace it, just like the apostles did. They know how to do this. So I think we need to be putting some serious thought into adapting what we have here to that sort of situation. Very interesting. Um, indeed, will we be ready when when we are called? And mm -hmm. uh, I think everybody needs to ask themselves that question now. We we better be proactive. You're right. Yeah. Because, yeah. We need uh, we need to be proactive. We I mean then the Lord could come in the midst of it, and that's wonderful. But we need to to be living as though that we're going to have to live the way that the apostles did under those circumstances. 
and lots of other Christians in the in the in the patristic era. You know, we have a whole history of this, and it confounds evil that that when when things are the worst, that is when the church is often the most powerful, and when things are are easy, it's often when the church is the most lazy or lackadaisical, apathetic, is the term you used before. You know, I'm not. I mean, I don't want to sign up for persecution. I don't want my kids, my grandkids, you know, to to inherit this world, even though it certainly looks like they're going to. I mean, nobody's like, you know, jumping up and down, yippee, you know, I can't wait for that to happen. But in, in some respects, it's supposed to happen. And in, in some respects, this is what will separate the serious people from the pretenders. And, and that will produce a church that God really can and will use in really mighty ways. And we can see that analogy in other parts of the world. So I, I just think that the church here, we, we should not be putting our trust in political parties. Doesn't mean we abandon them. Doesn't mean we, we divorce ourselves from the process and, and the wonderful opportunities we have in, in terms of liberty and, and the government as our founders gave us. I mean, all those are good things. But ultimately, that is not, that's not the kingdom of God. Okay, I don't think Jesus could have been any clearer. My kingdom is not of this world. I mean, that's a pretty categorical statement. So I think we need mm-hmm. some perspective here. You know, we, that our salvation, in terms of obviously spiritual, but even in the lives that we live here on earth, it's not going to come from human political power structures. Okay, we have things. We have we have we have power and ability and, and a mission, frankly, that transcend all that. And so it would be nice if we started living like it. You know, where we started to take it seriously. And I think that persecution is one of the things that will force us to take it seriously. You know, and, and to really yeah. trust the, the thing that we're supposed to trust. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, um, you know, we see that uh, persecution is happening in the world. It's happening in, in the Middle East. And it's um, happened on and off, you know, throughout history. And we are seeing an increase in this um and it's you know really from the Arab Spring, the increase from the Arab Spring until now. And Dr. Heiser, if we can, uh, in the last few minutes, um, do you? I mean, we obviously see this uh, mounting attack against uh, Christianity, against the Bible, uh, in public schools and the military, and this push for whatever you want to call it, just this evil uh, sexuality, evil uh, religions. Um, how long? In- until you think that the problem spread from the Middle East till we start seeing the religious persecution here in America, if you had to put a in it, put it in a time frame yeah it it really you know if you're talking about the shift from marginalizing Christianity, in other words, shifting it from being a good, noble, virtuous thing to a thing that's vilified and demonized and villainized and frankly criminalized I think we're already in that transition if you're talking about you know take, taking away rights you know kind of like you know what happened with, with Jews you know like you know herding them into you know population centers and ghettos and whatnot. Uh, it would not surprise me if you know in, in a couple of decades that's what we're that's where we're at you know, and I think there are a number of things that can obviously work against that. Um, you know, so I, I don't, 
I have no idea, you know, ultimately. I'm just saying that, uh, you know, a few decades into the future, it would not surprise me if Christians are singled out and, and have certain uh, rights that are common to everyone else denied to them. And, yeah. and we move beyond marginalization to criminalization. That, that I, I don't think is a stretch. Uh, in the maybe maybe in my lifetime, you know, certainly I think in my kids and my grandkids' lifetime. And what you just said before I asked that question about you know how persecution will force us to stand up, the criminality will force us to do things. Uh, mm-hmm. They make Christianity criminal. That will get the ball rolling. Um, and it's sad that it comes to that, but you know this is how it's going to play out. Doctor Hazard, thank you. you know, People do have a on. conscience, and they will see that. You know, yes, yeah, God use it. Dr. Eisler, thank you so very much for your time, and we will uh, be talking again. God bless you. Your, your gracious gift of time. Dr. Heiser's website, just his initials, drmsh.com. That's drmsh.com. Unseen Realm, theunseenrealm.com, named after his book. Thank you so very much, Dr. Heiser. Until next time, Thank God you. bless. Folks, we're right back on the other side with incredible news. Incredible news. Stay right there. And welcome back, folks, to this edition of the Hagman and Hagman Report. Uh, on this All Hallows Eve, the Halloween edition. Of course, that was Dr. Michael Heiser that we uh, were just uh, that just dropped in for two segments, two two hour segments. Uh, what an interesting. Well, I, I mean, wow. Go back and listen to that, uh, folks. He, he brought some incredible information with him. Um, absolutely fascinating information. Now, you know, the what's dominated the news over the weekend, of course, is the Comey statement, statement by James Comey, director of the FBI, saying, hey, just got to tell you this, wrote a letter to the Senate, got to tell you this. Um, there's about 650,000 emails that we found on Anthony Weiner's uh, computer, and there there goes Real Tech Eric, at Real Tech Eric on uh, Twitter, laughing. Can't, yeah, that's right, you can't take it. Um, no, this is serious. Um, I was I was visiting with Dave Hodges the first hour last night. We were talking about different scenarios, but what would happen, for example, if uh, well, if Hillary Clinton was indicted? I don't think. I mean, look, no, no, no. Washington doesn't move that fast, in my view. I, I don't think that's. The, the, I think there's too many layers to this. Um, however. How dare her, how dare the Clinton machine bring us, in my view anyway, bring us to a potential constitutional crisis through the actions, through her, her criminal hubris. And that's, I think that's where we're at with this. Folks, um, before we go any further, I want to tell you about a, a, I'm just so excited for a new sponsor coming aboard. You know, we have this internal Listener protection program. Well, that's kind of what we call it here at the Hagman Studios. We don't. Um, here, here's here's the thing. When we talk about a product, service, a business, it's going to be the best in our view. The best in. It's going to be the. It's going to be the best. It's going to be good for the listener. 
So because we we're very protective of our listeners. Check out this site. Texasready.net. All right. You heard me. Texasready.net. Met oh we 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 met the owner of Texasready.net. Listen to Bailey. She's called the seed lady. And she really knows her seeds. Texas Ready seed banks are ranked the highest in the world, but for good reason. First of all, they contain regionally appropriate open pollinated heirloom seeds. Most seed companies don't take into consideration uh, geographical regional distances or uh, differences. TexasReady.net, they do. We're going to be talking to her at some point in the future. You're going to want to hear what she's got to say. But for now, I want to welcome TexasReady.net, the best in the heirloom seed business, TexasReady.net, TexasReady.net. Thank you. Welcome aboard. And I believe the best of the best of the best seeds out there, TexasReady.net. And again, you're going to be hearing more about that company. Welcome aboard, TexasReady.net. Welcome aboard, Listen to, and, and again, I, we don't, we do not, um, accept just normal. I mean, we, 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 we really look into the product, the services offered by potential sponsors and sponsors. And she, I'll tell you what a great package, TexasReady.net. Um, <clears throat> this weekend, I just want to give you some background here very quickly and then I'll, t- I'll turn this over to Joe, but, um, two things, something you didn't hear perhaps. Or if you did, it was kind of jumbled underneath the uh, um, email fiasco. The U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Did you know they're currently detaining more than 40,000 illegal aliens um, right now? That number could reach as, as many as 50,000 here in the coming weeks, if not month or so. During the fiscal year 2016, the U.S. Border Patrol apprehended 408,870 illegal aliens invading across the southern border. That's up 23% than in fiscal year 2015. In other words, 23% more than uh, the year before. A guy by the name of Brandon Judd, he's the president of the National Border Patrol Council, was quoted as saying, they only catch half. They only catch half of the illegals. So if you extrapolate that number, calculating illegal entries based on that formula, 408,870 illegal aliens evaded detection in fiscal year 2016, totaling about 817,740 illegal entries into the United States last year. And the integrity of, the, of our immigration system, national sovereignty, it's just it, it's in tatters. Who do we have to thank for this? Really, the Uniparty. And uh, Trump speaks about this, of course. And I do believe that uh, that we need to overhaul everything, but I, I, we, we need to stop the flow immediately. The Border Patrol is overwhelmed. It's a crisis. Now, with respect to uh, Comey's statement on Friday, you know, you have to take a look at the backdrop of this, and I'm, and I'm going to turn this over to Joe. When James Comey announced back on, on July 5th that the Department of Justice would not seek an indictment, an indictment of Hillary Clinton, 
for the failure to safeguard state secrets related to her email use while she was Secretary of State. He set in motion certain things that I'm sure he didn't really take into account, or maybe he did. But there's a backstory. Judge Andrew Napolitano talks about this. Of course, the how did we find out about the emails, the private server? It was via the Benghazi hearings. It was in March of 2015. The New York Times reported on the Clintons' use of a private email address for her official government work and the fact that she didn't preserve emails on the State Department server. This is contrary, of course, to federal law. Again, contrary to federal law. No matter what these these people at the, these these uh, people in the um, media state. After an initial evidence collection and a round of interviews, agents and managers, senior managers, gathered together back in the summer of last year to decide how to proceed. And it was obvious that that uh, it was obvious to everybody that there was a prima facie case. A prima facie case could be made against Hillary Clinton for espionage, theft of government property, and obstruction of justice. Not just Hillary, but others in her circle. The consensus at that time, folks, among the rank-and-file FBI agents involved in this process was to seek a federal indictment or a, a formal criminal investigation. Now, six months after that meeting, the senior FBI agent in charge of that investigation resigned from the case, retired from the FBI, because he felt the case was going sideways. That's the quote, sideways. And that's also law enforcement terminology for nowhere by design. John Giacalone had been the chief of the New York City, Philadelphia, and Washington, D.C. field offices for the FBI, and at the time of his sideways comment was the chief of the FBI National Security Branch. The reason for the sideways comment ostensibly was for his realization that the Department of Justice and the FBI senior management had decided that the investigation would not work in tandem with the federal grand jury. In other words, they weren't going to impanel a federal grand jury. And, And when you look at the cases, criminal cases, they always have a federal grand jury. Because in criminal cases, the FBI, the Department of Justice, cannot issue subpoenas for testimony for tangible or for tangible things. Only grand juries can. So he knew that without a grand jury, the FBI would be would be toothless. The investigation would be toothless. No subpoena power. Without a grand jury, the FBI would have a difficult time at best persuading any federal judge to issue search warrants. A judge would perceive the need for search warrants to be not as critical in such a case because to a judge, the absence of a grand jury can only mean the case is, in fact, sideways and not a serious investigation. So the investigation dragged, and Donald Trump simultaneously began to rise in the Republican ranks. It became apparent to uh, Jacob Lone's successors that the goal of the FBI was not to... It was not to conduct a fair and honest investigation, but it was to working to exonerate Clinton. All right, and, and there's a way that you can do that. You conduct an investigation with with a preconceived, you know, intent, and that's to exonerate. In, in late spring of this past year, agents began interviewing the Clinton inner circle. Immunity was granted like 
you know, candy at Halloween. Clinton herself, she was interviewed on July 2nd. You'll recall this. It was four hours during which interviewers seemed to, um, to summon the Bureau to lack any passion, any aggression, any seriousness to the interview itself. A few determined agents were frustrated by Clinton's professed uh, lack of memory during her interview and her references to a recent head injury. Now, she talked about this in the interview. And, and she said, yeah, maybe it's because of the head injury that I had. So the agents sought to obtain her medical records to verify the gravity of her injury and to determine whether she had been truthful with them they prepared the paperwork to obtain the records only to have their request denied by Comey himself on the 4th of July. Think about that. So some of the agents did the unthinkable at that point. They reached out to colleagues in the intelligence community and asked them to obtain Clinton's medical records so they could show them to Comey. NSA can access anything, folks. You know that. Those communications took place late on July 4th. Now, when Comey learned of those efforts, what did he do? He scheduled a conference, news conference on July 5th. And that's the infamous conference where he announced that Clinton would not be indicted because the FBI had determined that her behavior, although extremely careless, was not reckless, which is the legal standard in espionage cases. He then proceeded to recount the evidence against her. He did this, no doubt, to head off the agents who were seeking the medical records uh, who he suspected would leak evidence against her. So, three months later, and just weeks before, well, two weeks before Clinton may, may possibly become the next president of the United States, <laughs> we have learned that Obama regularly uh, communicate with Clinton via her personal email service about matters that the White House considered classified. That means he lied when he told CBS News that he learned of the Clinton service, just like everybody else on the news. Well, according to Judge Andrew Napolitano, we also learned last week that Andrew McCabe Gia Colon's successor as head of the FBI Washington field office, number three guy now at uh, the FBI, is married to who? Well, a woman who Clinton, who the Clinton money machine in Virginia funneled about $675,000 in lawful legal campaign funds for a failed 2015 run for the Virginia Senate. Comey apparently saw no conflict, none whatsoever or even the appearance of impropriety, having a person in charge of the Clinton investigation. Yeah. So there you have that. This is the investigation. It turns out uh, Comey's wife, as well as brother, both <coughs> got money directly from the Clintons Clinton, yeah. and Clinton Foundation. Uh, yeah. Yep, yep. Which, you know, raises a lot of questions for me as to this latest move by Comey. <coughs> There's been speculation that um, you know, he wants to save his own job, so he turned around and did this. There is speculation that there was a revolt at the FBI that oh, know, there is. hundreds or thousands of FBI agents had their resignations, what we're going to hand in their resignation that oh, he yeah. did not investigate this. And that could be true because... He's got a stack of resignations on his desk, Joe. Well, that's... Um, 
some speculation that's out there, but it also there's also an article out there today that states that the FBI agents wanted to go further and actually investigate the Clinton Foundation itself. It's being investigated. There are two Which separate now, criminal investigations. Yeah, it is being, being investigated yep. now. Yep. And Hillary Clinton, while all this is going on, um, a few things first. If you look at the polls, if you why would those, you even try to? Um, it shows there's been an impact, uh, a positive impact for Trump. You know, the different state polls show he is very close in Pennsylvania, which he was trailing by about an eight point margin. If you listen to the polls a few weeks ago, uh, he goes, he's up by two in New Hampshire. Um, and, uh, he is back campaigning in blue Democratic states that were going to be written off uh, as right. Democratic states. And I think part of that is due to the recent, uh, new email investigation. Now, um, there's on Drudge, there's a, at the very top, it says LA Times Tuesday, FBI investigators plan to conduct new email review over several weeks. It now hopes to complete preliminary assessment in coming days. See, they, 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 they but, can create, I know you're what you're going to say, but before I, before you say that, just understand the FBI has the resources to create programs where they can go in and using just a set of, of commands identify any potential um, emails of substance. But go ahead, finish your statement. Which well, I no, there's 650,000 emails. Right. I don't know how they could, you know, I know they have the, the resources and I know they can, you know, well, I'll tell you, go through they're, programs, they're, but they're, they're when they originally handed over the 55,000 emails, they handed over hard copies of paper, uh, which made it yes. harder yes. To, to look through. But, um, 650,000 emails. I mean, you have, you can't just do keyword searches. Like when we do WikiLeaks, you have to read through the threads to understand because you can, uh, well, do yeah, a keyword search get a re- right now. and get a reply of a reply of a reply and it has right. no context or meaning. So you have to go back. Well, through it. you'll be glad to know that the Department of Justice is, is giving resources. That's Lynch Department of Justice is giving the FBI resources to go through quickly the emails. And what's the rush? Okay, because you've got you've got the Obama Lynch, uh, the, the same Lynch that met the target of the investigation on the tarmac, in uh, the subject's husband uh, that is on the tarmac in, in Phoenix. So you've got the Depart- Lynch Department of Justice saying, okay, we're, we're going to hand over to you to you the FBI, the personnel needed to go through these emails. So why the rush? Is that is it to clear Hillary before yes. the election or before the end of the week? Yes, I believe so. Um, will Huma Abedin be thrown under the bus? Yeah. That's an option, too. Um, interestingly enough, when these reports of the reopening of the email investigation out, um, Democrats as well as Hillary Clinton began um, attacking the FBI verbally. Uh, there's an interesting story on Drudge, if you want to read it, about James Carville the you oh, know, yeah. master political strategist for the Clintons, aye, aye, aye. where he talks about how the FBI, the House of Representatives on the Republican side, and the KGB are working together uh, in a vast right Russian wing conspiracy to go after Hillary Clinton. But what's interesting is I think uh, Hillary has went off the deep end. If you go on her Twitter feed, about every 30 minutes or, or less, she's throwing out tweets, and the latest one, I found an, I actually found an article to back up what she's tweeting, but Donald Trump has finally been tied to Russia. You ready for this? It's the Russians are coming. No, yeah. you ready, you ready for yeah, this? This I'm is ready. funny. Um, so this is from The Hill, and I, 
Report connects Trump organization to server with a Russian bank. Right. Now, Trump owns a business, a billion-dollar business, multi-businesses. He's not a political organization until his campaign. But what they're trying to do, Hillary put this big tweet up, uh, you know, Donald Trump's computer tied to Russia. This is only, see, this is she's projecting only their, yeah, she's projecting these lies about Donald Trump, trying to make any type of, I mean, all computers are connected. My computer right here is connected to Russia somehow, I'm sure. Well, it, if you want to find a connection, you can, but it has nothing to do with bribery, you know, millions of dollars in, in, uh, money for, for billions of dollars in favors. You, you yeah, that, that's right. You got the Clinton Foundation. And course. there's nothing criminal that he, well, it, he did with these connections that have been even shown to hint that's, that's criminality, let alone. Point, though. That's the talk, Joe. It's all about Russia. See, it, Russia hacked the emails. It was Donald Trump and Russia that's behind all of this. That's like, um, Hillary Clinton commit, committing a murder of a one-year-old child on video, and a Chinese person videotapes it and releases it. Is it the, the Chinese man's fault for the well, kid getting murdered? Yeah, of course. Because he released the video? It's the shoot the messenger. But, but I, I, I'm just, I'm amazed. I, I'm amazed and I'm appalled at, at this, at this. I, I don't, See, I don't I'm not amazed at that. I'm amazed that people are, are well, they're falling buying it yes. or, or even running with it just to, to try to, to prop her up in the media. Well, Donna Brazil, Donna Brazil, I mean, how, she said she's under persecution because she's a Christian. Did you see that? Yes, I did. And here's my question. Donna Brazil is the, I mean, she got caught red handed twice feeding right. a, a um, CNN question uh, from a town hall meeting to Hillary Clinton's campaign and a debate question from the primaries uh, to Hillary Clinton's campaign. And CNN even issued a statement that they are, uh, Disappointed or confused or something like that. I don't remember exactly what it was, but she has resigned as her post from, uh, the, from CNN and, and the DNC. Right. Um, I don't, I don't think she's resigned from the DNC yet. That sure no, is just from the CNN, or from CNN. They actually CNN terminated their, their contract yeah. with her as a contributor, but, but, but see, Donald, Donna Brazil, uh, it was the one, if, if you remember, there were a couple of interviews, one with Megan Kelly, and then there was one with a, um, uh, alt-right, if you will, or a, a new media uh, uh, interview. But she was approached and she said, yeah, I'm, I'm persecuted. And, and she's, as a Christian, I, I'm used to persecution, as you were referencing. I mean, you got to be kidding me. Um, so Donna, the, Donna Brazil, the interim chair of the, the Democratic National Committee and contributor to CNN, caught red-handed in the email, Podesta email dumps caught red-handed feeding Hillary Clinton the questions during a town hall meeting and that was I believe March uh, I've got it here it was in March of this year a town hall debate and yeah here it is right here uh, with Jake Tapper on March 13th 2016 the town hall debate that was one and there was one previous to that where'd you get the question from it it was this determined that that question was given to her from Roland Martin, a TV One host and co-moderator with Jake Tapper. And that was for the March 13th, 2016 town hall debate. But but for her to blame, and she's even blaming the Russians. That's the, 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 that's the whole thing right now. It's all Russia. I mean, 
Oh man, I'm all right. But the Clinton culture of corruption that we're seeing, the, and Trey Gowdy today, I, I was plugged into every station. I mean, I had monitors everywhere, but Trey Gowdy, uh, coming out and he was interviewed on, on Fox today. And, uh, I can't remember who interviewed him. I think it was maybe, uh, um, Steve Ducey. I, I can't remember. Saying, uh, asking about Harry Reid. Harry Reid, uh, sent a letter to Comey. And, and where, where Reid accused Comey of violating, violations of the Hatch Act. All right. Now, mm-hmm. the, now the Hatch Act, folks, well, you can look up what the Hatch Act is, but, Gowdy was just incensed by that and said, look, I know the Hatch Act, and if anyone violated the Hatch Act, you for one, Harry Reid, violated it. And, and it was kind of funny because Gowdy said, um, um, oh, uh, I think the interviewer said to, to ask Gowdy, you call or stated to Gowdy, you called, uh, Harry Reid a political hack. Do you stand by that statement? And Gowdy said, you know, what I want to call him, I can't because we could find by the FCC. And the vitriol right now taking place, but there, there's this unraveling in Washington that we're seeing, this chaotic unraveling. But, folks, I think the bigger picture, and, and then I'm going to just kick it to you, I think the bigger picture here is we're being set up for a constitutional crisis. And I said this right from the beginning, right from the beginning, I, didn't I? I mean, I'm asking you, the listener and the viewer, didn't we're being set up for a constitutional crisis, and regardless, the legitimacy of the outcome of the election is going to be questioned, or going to be a question in the mind of the public. And this is by design, and that's where I think we're headed. And of course, all of this is to enable the globalists, the agenda of the globalists. Joe, I'm going to kick mm-hmm. it back to you. And um, interestingly, Obama has come out and. With all the cries of, of foul play from Democrats on this new email investigation, the president has come out and stated that he believes Comey is not acting to influence the elections, but will, uh, but is acting, uh, you know, in, as he should as, uh, with integrity, as the uh, press secretary said earlier, which is interesting <laughs> because he was, as you mentioned earlier, caught hey, lying. Comey was the, the hero. Uh, July 6th, he was the most celebrated hero of the, of the, of the left, of the progressives. Today, he's the dirtbag. And one more thing before the break, I want to hit this and we can jump on this on the other side. John Podesta, his best friend. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Will be the one conducting the you can't uh, DOJ investigation into Huma Abedin. Oh yeah, you can't make this up. So, uh, on Zero Hedge. Right. Uh, uh, if yep. you guys want to read this. And we can get into this on the other side. Podesta, Hillary Clinton's chief of staff, former head of Bill Clinton's White House uh, under Bill Clinton. Um, and this is from Zero Hedge. Now that the FBI has obtained the needed warrant to start pouring over the 60, uh, 650,000 or so emails from Anthony Weiner's notebook, among which thousands were sent by Huma Abedin using Hillary Clinton's private server, um, somebody who is a, a, a Peter... Kadzik was right. pardoned by right. Bill Clinton for tax evasion back in 2001, just before he left the White House. He is now the person in the DOJ who's going to be investigating Huma Abedin. Yep. A complete conflict of interest. 
uh, if there ever was one. And he's going to be also working closely with the FBI and all necessary taking all necessary recourses, they say, and appropriate steps. Appropriate steps. Um, no conflict here, folks. Yeah, to Nothing do this We'll be right back with our last segment right after this. Stay with us. To our final segment this night of the Hagman and Hagman Report. Uh, just before the break, we were talking about an article on, on Zero Hedge about how John Podesta, one of his very close friends, is uh, and Clinton's campaign chair, um, his best friend at the DOJ will be in charge of a probe that could make or break Hillary in this election, which I don't think that's true uh, because I believe she's already broken. But this name that keeps popping up that Zero Hedge points out. Just a second. Imagine her the day after the election. Uh, imagine l- having to, like, live with her. Okay. Uh, you know, like, go to bed that night if, if it's a blowout. A whole, whole boy. Peter whole. Kodzik, K-A-D-Z-I-K, is the name of this DOJ official. And the day after Hillary Clinton testified before the House Select Committee on Benghazi last October, Podesta, Hillary's uh, campaign chairman, met for dinner with a small group of well-connected friends, including Peter Kadzik, who is currently a top official at the U.S. Justice Department, serving Assistant Attorney General for Legislative Affairs. Now, that's from a Daily Caller article um, back right after the um, the Benghazi hearings. And... They had dinner after the day after the Benghazi um, the hearings with Hillary. But what's interesting about this guy is uh, his role, Kodzik's role at the DOJ, where he started in 2013, and he helped spearhead the effort to nominate Lynch, who was heavily criticized for her secret meeting with Bill Clinton just before the FBI announced it was not going... Three days before that. Yeah. Uh, you know. Now, Kodzik is a lawyer. He represented Podesta during the Monica Lewinsky investigation. He kept him out of jail, according to the Podesta emails that that came out. He, Podesta said, hey, he kept me out of jail. Now, listen to this. In the waning days of the Bill Clinton administration, Kodzik lobbied Podesta on behalf of Mark Rich, the uh, fugitive who Bill Clinton controversially pardoned on his last day in office. Uh, that history is cited by Podesta in another email hack from his Gmail account in September 08 e- uh, email, which the Washington Free Beacon flagged last week. Podesta emailed an Obama campaign official who recommended Kotsik for a supportive role in the campaign. Podesta, who would later head up the Obama White House transition effort, wrote that Kotsik was a fantastic lawyer who kept me out of jail, as you just said. Of course. And, and 23... Number 23, Podesta emails. We've got them all, folks, and we're going through them. I know that others have, and we could be going. Podesta, uh, back in 1996, asked the United Nations Ambassador, Bill Richardson, to hire um, Monica Lewinsky, and we know that turned into at the White House. And it's interesting because this is the forensic equivalent of the blue dress. Well, this goes into... Uh, 
in April 96, the White House transferred Lewinsky from her job as the White House intern to the Pentagon in order to keep her and Bill Clinton separate, but the relationship ended up uh, coming out as she, um, as it, it was released. Now, uh, Kodzik was representing Mark Rich. Mark Rich was a billionaire financier who was wanted by the U.S. government for evading a $48 million tax bill. The fugitive was also implicated in illegal trading activity with nations that sponsored terrorism. And, and had Mark been Rich living, was pardoned. Living in Switzerland for 17 years, Kodzik lobbied Podesta heavily in the weeks before Clinton left office on January 20, 2001, and this information was released by a, a Senate or a House Oversight Committee in May 2002, that Kodzik was recruited into Mark Rich's lobbying campaign because his longtime friend was the White House Chief of Staff, John Podesta. Now, uh, Kodzik's connected uh, to Podesta and has had in his um, client, this Rich, got the pardon. But what happened was this uh, Rich, he donated more than a million dollars to the Clintons just before the pardon, then after the pardon, his wife gave $100,000 to Hillary Clinton New York Senate campaign and another $450,000 to the Clinton Presidential Library. So this is who is heading up the DOJ investigation into the Huma Abedin emails is a former lawyer of John Podesta who helped pardon a man wanted for $48 million in tax evasion from the U.S. government is now sitting at one of the top positions in the DOJ. No. And that's just scratching the surface on his shady history as a lawyer and his shady history with ties to the Clintons and to John Podesta. Exactly. And goes so, zero so, hedge for the rest of that. Yeah, I mean, look, look th- this is all this is all being, we're being played on this. But, but uh, the emails, the Podesta emails, the WikiLeaks emails will show. And, and folks, you got to understand how critically screwed up this is. I mean, how, how bad, badly screwed up this is. And the best emails or the worst for Clinton are coming out this week. That's right. But, but d- did you know that Clinton's people, including Huma, were keeping tabs on Anthony Weiner's sexting habits as far back as 2011? You, you look at the emails, the latest emails that came out. Podesta Who's now the chairman of the of the uh, uh, campaign, and Nira Tandon, a Senate aide and 2008 presidential campaign staffer, um, Jennifer Palmieri, the current campaign communications director, forwarded news of investigation into um, into the, the uh, to Podesta, and, and this is in the in the Podesta email leak. Now, this goes back to 2011. They knew about this. So, Huma Abedin, if, if, so if, if they knew, if Team Clinton knew, as, by the way, this should be in the New York Post, if it's not already, it'll be in there tomorrow. If Team Clinton knew about the sexting habits of Anthony Weiner, Huma's husband of a year in 2011, and Huma knew about this, then Think about that in terms of the 650,000 emails found on the laptop of Anthony Weiner. Think about, you talk about reckless, careless, 
It doesn't even begin to describe that. So there was foreknowledge of the sexting. Now, one thing that, uh, two things that I want to bring up really quick, and they're, uh, they're, they're not necessarily related, but they're related to this. According to, um, Joe DiGenova, now, you know, Victoria Tensing, Washington, D.C. attorney, Joe DiGenova, is married to Victoria Tenzing. He was, uh, DiGenova was on the David Webb show on Friday. Here's what he said. And, and I, and I pulled this specifically because I, I wanted to make sure that this is what exactly what he said because this is an impeccable source. Heavy, heavy into the, uh, a really well connected attorney inside DC. He said, guess what? Remember when the FBI were given the laptops by aides of Hillary Clinton and they, the FBI agreed to destroy the laptops after they went through them? Remember that? That this is back now during the summer? Guess what? A group of federal or a group of agents, FBI. Uh, and now these these laptops belong to Cheryl Mills, Heather Samuelson, at the very least. Never destroyed. The FBI agents kept these laptops and have them today. According to the, and I'm going to read the quote here, according to the agreement reached with the attorneys who handed over their laptops, the laptops were to be destroyed for the agreement after the testimony was given, after the interviews were given by the attorneys, the Bureau and the Department agreed to that, DiGenova said. However, the laptops, contrary to published reports, were not destroyed, and the reason is that the agents who are tasked with destroying them refused to do so, did not believe it was a lawful order. Oh, and by the way, the laptops are at the FBI for inspection by Congress or federal courts. <laughs> You can't make this up. Laptops available, never destroyed. Interesting. One more thing. <clears throat> the information that we got, and uh, I have not seen this reported anywhere, and if you have, let me know, <laughs> but included from the residence, from the Wiener residence, at Realtech Eric Relax. I said, Anthony Weiner. He goes chuckling like a schoolgirl there. Uh, a router. Now, why is that important? If a router was taken from the residence, they are looking to see what other devices. A router will tell you what other devices were connected to that network. So they, I don't believe this is just a mere fishing expedition. I believe they're either they know something or they are looking for something specific. And you talk about a potential Russian connection. If anything, folks, the exposure of classified information alone, this is admitted back in the summer, the exposure of classified information alone could have been picked up by any nation state at all, including but not limited to Russia. And they're, 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 they're saying, hey, um, the, the, the Clinton camp is saying is accusing Trump of kind of being connected to Russia. That's ridiculous. It, at least when you look at it at, at face. So there's two things that are of importance: the router and the fact that the laptops, which were supposed to be destroyed, belonging to Heather Samuelson, Cheryl Mills, were not. And uh, 
that's we have to keep our eyes on that as well. Joe, do you have something? <clears throat> um, yeah, I got a few things here. Um, this was posted to our website earlier today. Uh, <coughs> Yahoo News put this piece out. Most routes to 270 blocked for Trump needs last-ditch surge. And this is just an example of some of the mainstream media's talking points coming into this week. And um, they're still carrying the line that, you know, basically the race is over. No need to come out and vote, as uh, they proclaim in this article that um, basically uh, Trump needs to not only win all the toss-up states, but has to do so, uh, has to win some of the, you know, Hillary Clinton states as well. And they say it's basically impossible for Trump to win. Um, it's it's impos- almost impossible, they say. Uh, they even mention the effects of FBI's uh, letter to Congress on Friday informing lawmakers of, they say, developments possibly related to the Clinton, <laughs> okay. to oh. the email investigation into Hillary Clinton. But um, what they do is they go around and they quote all these uh, different um, senators who are obviously sellouts and, and other pundits, you know, saying, oh, Trump can't win, Trump's going to lose. Uh, and that's very possible. He needs to win Florida. 200, uh, 270 electoral votes are needed. Uh, Trump must win in Florida based on the latest one uh, thing, polling or latest uh, analysis. And I follow, I know I don't, I don't believe that these polls are accurate, but I follow the real clear politics poll. Yeah, of course. And they have the electoral college polls on there as well as, um, the latest swing states and, uh, just basically all the <laughs> states up there. And the spread on the electoral college has changed. Well, it, as well as yeah, of late, but um, still, it's it's they're showing now really that Trump up. is up in Florida, Trump's up in Ohio, that uh, Trump is up in Iowa, he's up in New Hampshire. They also say Clinton's down in Pennsylvania, she's down in Colorado, but she's up in North Carolina, and the um, the voting fraud, voter fraud. They're in Virginia. Um, I think this is real important. I think this was also on Drudge earlier today. This talks about the amount of um, vote-in or paper ballots that was given and and asked for this year compared to the last election cycle. Now, the last during the last election cycle, and the title of this article is Watchdog Alleges Virginia Prepping Ma- for Mass Voter Fraud. And and this this goes right in line this with is from Dave Hodges, too. From lifezet.com, yeah. uh, it talks about the um, the ballots that the amount of ballots that were asked for this year compared to the last elections that aren't you know going to the to the polls and voting absentee ballots, right? The uh, mail-in ballots, official stockpile, a, mil- a million provisional ballots in swing state uh, governed by a close Clinton ally. Virginia has printed one million provisional ballots, an unprecedented number. That could allow a large number of previously disqualified felons or illegal immigrants to cast uh, right, votes so, in the so presidential swing state. So they're printing more ballots. Than last year, or last election in 2012, they printed 2,500 right. ballots. Over a million. Or I'm sorry, that was for Fairfax alone. In 2016, Fairfax alone received over 265,000. Um, no, so now million. it's over a million in yeah. the state uh, in total. And they said that the election is over-preparing for worst-case scenarios and increasing the likelihood of illegal votes being cast. 
In reply to Republican complaints earlier this month, Virginia Department of Election Commissioner uh, Eduardo Cortez acknowledged officials are preparing for all contingencies according to the Richmond Times-Dispatch. But George, and the provisional ballot printing doesn't make sense even for contingencies and doesn't compare to the demand in 2012. And they go through the different counties. Uh, so so they're, prepar- they're actually preparing for, or they're, they're actually perp- perpetrating fraud yeah. by printing the ballots. In 2012, Stafford County right. used less than 500 provisional ballots. In 2016, they received more than 30,000. Loudoun County used 700 provisional val- ballots. In 2016, 84,000. But now it's over a million for the state. And it's over a million for the well, state. Well, okay, so, so to hold that thought, because in, when I was on with Dave Hodges last night, we were talking, he had a guest on, and I know, I know who, I know exactly, I know the and name of the guest. And they tied us back to executive order. How's that? As part of emergency preparedness efforts in response to 2015 consent decree related to but mitigating the ballots were deployed, according to the information that, that we have. The ballots were deployed to the state. No, this, these are provisional ballots that were deployed in it. Matters, uh, contingency plans for emergency, um, okay, in case okay, of emer- right. in case a power goes out in half the state all and right. they need, uh, these ballots to fill out. But it all, but think about this. If they don't, if nothing happens in Virginia and everybody goes to vote the way that they do with the voting machines, what is going to happen to those million plus provisional ballots? Will no. they be then filled out and still deployed? Well, I, I'm a, I, I look, I, it's, it's very it's possible. Very, it's possible, but, but it all comes down to the electoral. print these ballots, um, they say it comes after Governor Terry McAuliffe, a Democrat and key ally of Clinton, said he will allow more than 200,000 released felons to vote on November 8th. There you go. And, and this is, the Democrats are pulling out all the stops. And when I, when I was on with Dave Hodges last night, the first hour on the Common Sense Show, there was a gentleman that, um, I can't remember. He was just identified as anonymous, and, and he was a he was in a position. He's in a position to know the the uh, the, the mail ins the the mail in votes. I believe I can say that he's worked for a post office type job. I'll just say that. And he said that he witnessed. Uh, um. Well, he witnessed more. There were 80% more, or I'm sorry, in Maricopa County, Arizona, 80% of the voters, or they have already received 80, um, 80% yeah. of votes in paper ballots. And I was going to ask you about this. They recently That's crazy. indicted... Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Yeah, Do you yeah. think that was because of the what they were doing with the elections? No, I, I think. Look, look, Arpaio. This goes back a year and a half, uh, and Arpaio has been a thorn in the side of justice, Washington, Washington Department of Justice. Arpaio is actually following the law, and it's so interesting to me to watch this play out with the. Uh, Department of Justice, but I understand too. When you get on the wrong side of the, the Department of Justice, and you get a civil rights lawsuit filed against you by the Department of Justice, they are coming down on our pile. So this is all over uh, him following the law, the Department of Justice being lawless, and under the color that the DOJ under the color of of uh, you know civil rights. Well, this is BS. But our pile is on its way out, so to speak. But I, no, this is all political. Uh, political nonsense. 
And and by the way, uh, getting back to the emails and the Russia connection, the there was an email released yesterday. I think it was dump twenty email dump number twenty two. Uh, I'm fairly certain or twenty three maybe. I'm not sure, but it was dated February twenty six two thousand and fifteen to John Podesta from uh, T. Flournoy. Okay, whoever that is. Subject line endowment, and here's what the email said: foreign government donors. All the money is in. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, this is in reference to the foreign money being donated to the Clinton Foundation. And I must add this. The King of Morocco um, gave $12 million to the Clinton Foundation on the condition that Hillary Clinton fly to Morocco. And you've heard this. I'm, you may have heard this before. Maybe you haven't. And give a speech. Well, didn't quite happen that way. But $12 million, King of Morocco. Um, this was uh, referenced, by the way, by Robbie, Robbie Mook in an e- email, uh, February 18th, 2015. The Clinton VP Foundation, Clinton Foundation VP Mara Pauly on April 8th of 2015. And then also, once again, by um, Joel Benenson. April, or, uh, February 18th, 2015. But can you imagine, King of Morocco, $12 million for, on the condition that Hillary Rodham Clinton fly to Morocco, give a speech, but now having said that, there was some graft given to Morocco by the Clinton Foundation, but understand, this is the politics, this is the, this is self-enrichment to the max. And oh, the Podesta emails, and I'm just gonna kind of finish with this. The Podesta emails, the emails themselves, I shouldn't say just the Podesta emails, but when you start looking at the totality of the emails. Yeah, there's new emails. Um, not only Podesta emails, you have the <coughs> 33,000 emails from Hillary Clinton's server, the deleted emails that are supposedly, they're not out yet, but they're allegedly going to be they will announced be. or they dropped tomorrow. You have the WikiLeaks emails, which are the Podesta emails. Then you have what um, Judicial Watch has been doing, and a new State Department documents reveal more Clinton Abedin email exchanges of classified information on unsecured servers. Judicial Watch today released 323 pages of new Department of State documents, including previously unreleased email exchanges, which Clinton and top aide Abedin sent classified information over Clinton's ClintonEmail.com unsecure email system. According to a Freedom of Information Act, Exemptions cited in the documents obtained by Judicial Watch. <coughs> Excuse me. Three of the Clinton Abedin email exchanges contained material classified to protect national security. Also included in the newly obtained documents is an additional instance of the State Department doing special favors for high-dollar Clinton Foundation donors. And documents include instances of distribution by State Department officials of Clinton's government schedules to members of the Clinton Foundation staff. And it gets into more from there. It says, uh, there is, um, the documents contain not previously turned over to the State Department, bringing the known total to date of such emails uncovered by Judicial Watch to 238 new Clinton emails, not part of the 55,000 pages that were turned over to the State Department. 
These records further appear to contradict statements, not only by Clinton, but by her staff, that as far as she knew, all government emails were turned over to the State Department. And then they go into some of the emails, and you can go to Judicial Watch for the latest there. Well, let me let me just close by saying this, and, and I want to ask the, the people of America, the never-Trumpers out there, the Christian conservatives, if you're a Christian conservative and you're saying, well, I can't vote for Trump, so so that means you're going to either throw your vote away or, or vote for Hillary Clinton. Let me ask you this. You want to bring further chaos to this country by bringing in potentially a, a Hillary Clinton uh, who's under criminal investigation for the emails. And, folks, Comey did not shut down the investigation on July 5th. He, he, he left it open-ended, okay? You'll have to go back and understand what he was saying on the 5th of July. He said there's, they didn't, to date they didn't find any, any intent, which was the basis, according to, to Comey, uh, for filing charges. And wouldn't, he couldn't find any, uh, of course you, you remember what he said on July 5th, but, but the fact of the matter is, he, he, she is still now, or now still, or again under investigation for the emails. The Clinton Foundation is under criminal investigation as well. So, to the Christian conservatives out there, are you telling me you would, you would, you would throw your country, the national security and sovereignty of our nation under the bus by placing a woman perhaps for the sake of being a woman, into the White House, into the Oval Office, that's under criminal investigation by the FBI. And, you know, an indictment is not a conviction. It's an accusation. We understand that. And people have asked, and and I've looked at this, and, you know, can, and David Hodges and I were were kind of um, verbally sparring over this, can someone under indictment, can they be elected president to the office of president? Yes. I believe the answer is yes, based on all of my research. Because an indictment is merely an, an, an accusation. Will that happen? I don't, I don't, I don't know. The hubris of Clinton, she's not going to step down, I don't believe. But what happens, like the death of a candidate, what happens if a candidate is indicted either before or after the election, date of election, but before the meeting of the Electoral College on the 20th, and before, we'll say, the meeting or the um, the swearing-in of the Congress on January 3rd, or before inauguration, what happens between November 9th at, you know, one second after midnight, if, the, if a winner is decided, and let's say it's Hillary Clinton, and she... Um, during this time, she, beca- she she gets somehow incapacitated or, or otherwise, uh, you know, she, if she gets arrested, for example, which I don't think would happen. Mm-hmm. But if that's the case, I mean, it's rather difficult at that point. You can be arrested but still not convicted. And technically, I suppose under the law, you could still be pushed and or allowed to, uh, to be president. However, jail might, might pose a little bit of a you know, problem for you. I don't think it's Hillary Clinton. Yeah, I don't think anyone, yeah, that's true. I don't think anyone's going to get sworn in a prison cell or a jail cell. But having said all of that, we are headed towards a potential constitutional crisis. It's one of her own making. And this is so important, you know, for everything that she blamed Trump for. Hey, this guy doesn't have the judgment. He doesn't have the integrity. He doesn't have the experience. He doesn't have this. He doesn't have that. Oh, he's fear mongering. 
My goodness, who's fear-mongering, by the way? Do you see uh, CNN Wolf Blitzer said that the uh, Trump supporters were scaring the media? Of course. But, but, but again, we have documentation that the so-called Trump supporters, we, you go back to the O'Keefe videos, which the media wants to demonize O'Keefe. Hillary Clinton is demonizing O'Keefe. All of the Democrats, all the progressive Democratic National so- Socialists are demonizing O'Keefe. Even some Christians are demonizing O'Keefe. And you know who you are. My gosh. And that video Get over showed, yourselves. That video showed them admitting to coordinating the violence at the Donald Trump rallies and just to blame it on Donald Trump. Exactly. There is a conspiracy, indeed a conspiracy, and an approvable one at that. I want to thank Todd at Global Star Radio Network. God bless that man. One thing Hillary Clinton yeah. does, she always seems to blame her opponent for things she's guilty of. Sure. That's one thing I've noticed. Fair and moment. if you follow her trails of accusations against Trump, just look at what she was accused of just a, a week or a few days before, and you'll for sure find it. Vast right-wing conspiracy. That'll do it for us tonight. We will be back tomorrow. we got War a coverage. few things lined up. Um, Stan Day will be joining us tomorrow. We also have a, a different new guest in hour number two. But you got a great week. Join us. Join us because the first segment is going to be filled with new analysis. And hey, Syrian pipeline, Clinton new. It's all right here.